VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, February the 3rd. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing this. Come on with an edition of Open Line. Let's have a great show to wrap up the week. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So, some cold warning island-wide. The entire island going to face a cold snap this weekend. And then there's a mixed bag of rain and wind and snow. I see there's a bunch of different communities with delayed school openings or early closings or all the rest of it. So make sure you know what the issue is at your child's school. All right. Uh, this is a curious one. So everyone who's ever been involved in any kind of sport, just about every sport, is familiar with the brand Spalding. It was the day in 1876 that Albert Spaulding invested $800 to start his company. So they were making baseballs, tennis balls, basketballs, golf balls, footballs, American footballs, not rugby balls. Oh, yeah, the Six Nations rugby happens at this begins this weekend. So Spaulding has been manufacturing these balls since 1876. They folded into the Russell Corporation in 2003, but they're still producing the Spaldings. And to wrap up uh, just the talk of the first Olympic Winter Games, of course, uh, happened in 1924 in Chamonix, France. Canada beat the U.S. 6-1 to win the ice hockey gold medal in the first ever Winter Olympics. Uh, left winger Harry Watson led the tournament. Canadian left winger Harry Watson, 46 points. And with the NHL All-Star game this weekend, I don't know what it's like for other hockey fans, but I just can't get into it. I can't watch the NHL All-Star game. It's just not hockey as we're familiar with. Now, baseball, I think, is one All-Star game, which, you know, really does look and feel like a regular baseball game when there's something on the line. But I don't know if you're interested in watching that. Or maybe you're more interested in getting out of Mary Brown Center tonight to see the Growlers host the Maine Mariners. Anywho, this is a hockey-related matter, but it's much more about the aftermath of Fiona out in Puerto Basque and other communities that were pummeled by post-tropical storm Fiona. So this one's about uh, Peggy and Lloyd Savory. Their home has become absolutely an iconic image. Blue bungalow, basement blown out of it or washed away. And so, so many people lost so many really treasured mementos, souvenirs, objects, whatever it is. And there's been volunteers that continue to sift through the rubble to try to reunite people with their precious items that they've lost. Now, what might be important to me might not be important to you, but for the Savories, they have some hockey jerseys from their son David's career. So he's playing some junior up along in Ontario. He went on to play university hockey at the Royal Military College in Kingston. And the jerseys were lost. So a local fellow named Richard Spencer, he found the jerseys, brought them back to the Savories, and they say, you know, for instance, Christmas was extremely difficult. But the sign of the return of the jerseys, which were important to them, was a sign that things are looking up. So says Peggy Savory anyway. So that's a nice story, but the events of Fiona are still fresh in our minds, and certainly no more so than they would be for the folks impacted in Puerto Basque and other communities that were hit with post-tropical storm Fiona. And the rebuild continues, and there's still many important conversations to be had about that. So thank you, Richard Spencer, and I'm glad that put a smile on the Savory's face, who lost everything. I mean, can you even still think back to all those visuals we saw? What was it, on the 9th of December when it blew in? I mean, you'll never forget it. I had to turn away from social media that Saturday afternoon. The visuals were just overwhelming. Houses lost. A lady swept to the, out of the ocean and dead. So it was just unbelievable what we saw that day. But if you're in the community and you want to take it on from any angle of your choosing, let's do exactly that this morning. 
boy, that was devastating stuff. Uh, interesting story in the fishery. So we had a caller on this uh, topic uh, a couple of days ago. And this is about the shared joint stock that is mackerel. Now, last year, Canada had a full-on moratorium. No catching mackerel. Had a huge impact on the billion-dollar lobster fishery, of course, because that's a go-to bait fish. So the United States has now gone ahead and set their quota for 2023. Their organization that manages the fishery, like our DFO, is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. They've set the mackerel total alba catch this year at 3,639 metric tons. That's a reduction of 27% compared to 2022. Now, we know the stock's in trouble. Canada considers it to be in the critical zone. But with a shared stock, you wonder what DFO, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, will do this year on the commercial quota for mackerel. But the United States proceeding again this year, albeit with a reduction of some 27%. So if you're a harvester chasing the mackerel, and you know, we do indeed need to combine the compiled scientific data of which there has been pretty much a bit of a flop in the last few years based on DFO and all the issues surrounding why they weren't out there doing some of the data collection. But of course, catch rates are important to acknowledge. Anecdotally, what people see, I mean, how many videos did you see uh, flying around last year of mackerel tightly concentrated in the bay? Very clear to see as they bubble the waters as they team into the bays. But anyway, the Americans have set their quota. Remains to be seen. What Canada will do, decision apparently coming in the next couple of weeks. All right, let's turn to the strike at Mon. Uh, hopefully we'll get a representative from the Faculty Association to come on because there's lots of disconnects out there about what people are fighting for and who supports them and who does not. It looks like and feels like the administration is preparing for a prolonged strike which is not good news for all sides. It's certainly not good news for the students. One of the concerns being passed along is not only crossing picket lines, which many people do not want to be doing, and of course everyone who's poised, regardless if you're set to graduate this year or convoke, there's going to be a potential interruption. One of the, one of the disciplines getting a lot of attention are the members of the nursing schools that are set to graduate here in May. So, you know, there's different nursing schools uh, across the province, and this particular school at Memorial University is the only one that sees their classes interrupted at this moment in time. And so there's been some arrangement or negotiation that has meant that 69 of these nursing students will indeed be able to resume their clinical placements next week. Okay, so we know it's important because we've got a distinct problem and a nursing shortage. So how they're going to do it, I'm not really sure, but it does bring to bear some questions. So they'll be supervised by administrative leadership, and the already assigned per course instructors who aren't affected by the strike, but the striking faculty association are indeed fighting for these per course instructors. So my understanding is they're also going to be accompanied by a registered nurse. Now, the registered nurses union said that they are in full-throated support for the faculty association at Memorial University. I guess it's good news for sure for the healthcare system, good news for these 69 nursing students poised to graduate in May, but they wouldn't have been able to unless they were able to continue these clinical placements. So, And then there's all sorts of disconnects out there about what needs to be done. Like a full reformation of the Board of Regents will be a timely, a time-consuming exercise. You know, whether it be adding it to the collective bargaining, the provincial government following through with legislation to amend the Memorial University Act to allow or to ensure that there will be minimum one. The Faculty Association wants more than one seat, permanent seat, on the Board of Regents in the air of, as we've been calling it, collegial governance all the way through. 
But the faculty association, they don't see anything, or so they say, they don't see anything coming from the administration that leads them to believe that there is going to be that type of commitment on behalf of Memorial University's administration to see that happen, become a reality, and you want to take it on, we can do it. And the big question is, you know, what does the province do? If one of the sticking points will be about governance and a seat on the Board of Regents to be involved in academic decisions and others, then they've probably got to get at it. I don't think he can flip a switch and see it done similar to what they did with Bill, I think with Bill 24, to have the private ambulance operators deemed an essential service and back to work they go. And they still haven't figured that one out either. They haven't been able to negotiate an essential services agreement with their employer. But you want to take on the Mun role there? Let's go. We have been talking with, actually we talked with Paul Davis, Executive Director, at the gathering place yesterday. And the fact that they've been forced, based on being over capacity, to turn a couple of people away each night on the average, because they just don't have the space. And here we are in the depth of winter weather. So it looks like the province is going to be building a 30-bed emergency shelter somewhere in St. John's, very likely in the downtown area where homelessness is at its peak. Now, maybe Doug Pawson's going to come out from in homelessness in St. John's later on this morning. And this is about low barrier housing. So regardless if you have an issue with drugs poverty, mental illness, trauma, whatever the case may be, you will indeed be able to stay in this emergency shelter. It will come with what they refer to as block funding. So a set amount of money to be forwarded each year, quarterly, to this emergency shelter. There's some thought that it may indeed find a home in the Church of the Good Samaritan on St. Clair Avenue. That's the Anglican Church. But here's some numbers for context. On September 29th of 2020, there were 71 people spending nights in shelters. Two years later, October the 12th of 2022, that number had risen to 275, an increase of almost 300% in just two years. So this new shelter, absolutely important to get it done, and as soon as possible, requests for proposals have gone out. But then you wonder the next step of the conversation with who's best poised to own, operate, build, whatever the case may be, these emergency shelters. You know, will there still be the need for the blend between the public offering, and the emergency shelters that are run by for-profit business people. So there's a lot to take on on that front, but it's good to hear that they're going to move forward with that particular shelter because Lord knows it's required. There's going to be a health care meeting coming up in central Newfoundland. Residents of Grand Falls, Windsor, and surrounding area have been told, or pardon me, they've been invited to participate in discussions around what the future of health care in central Newfoundland looks and feels like. So seems that Mayor, B- Mayor Barry Manuel in Grand Falls-Windsor is leading the charge. He'll be joined by the chair of the Grand Falls-Windsor Community Healthcare Coalition. That fellow's name is Cyril Farrell and one of the town councillors, Holly Dwyer. So it's going to be set for uh, next Wednesday, the 8th of February, 7 p.m. at the Classic Theatre in GFW. So maybe if we can make some time with Mayor Manuel today, it'd be helpful just to paint the clearer picture of what the agenda will look like. We spoke with Bonavista Mayor John Norman yesterday about the role that his municipality is planning on playing in recruiting doctors to the area, whether it be service lots for a nominal fee of $1 or what have you. So maybe Mayor Manuel can help us understand how he's approaching this one in his community. And sticking with that, you know, Grand Falls-Windsor is one of the communities, in addition with Gander, to have these new 60-bed long-term care facilities built. There was huge numbers of problems and discrepancies that had to be addressed before we were able to move residents into these beds, which came with a lot of complication. People still remaining in hospital beds while they wait for a placement, and that continues to this day. 
men and women waiting and waiting and waiting, the anxiety growing day, day over day, the cost growing day over day, week over week. But on top of that issue, it's, you know, the province seems to be going down a pretty distinct path of private-public partnerships, whether it be for these long-term care facilities or the mental health hospital or the replacement for St. Clair's or the replacement for, for Her Majesty's Penitentiary. There's still massive questions to be asked on that front, in my opinion. Let me add to it one more time because the stories continue to flow in from families who are going through it today and families who are looking to the future for what might happen when their parents need to go to a long-term care facility. So whether we have more proactive measures taken regarding procedures and supports to age in your own home, but if you are going to long-term care, I mean, you know the stories, you hear them as much as I do. Together for decades, and then because of different health needs, separated, living in two different long-term care facilities or two different care facilities. And those stories are absolutely and literally breaking my heart. They're flowing into my inbox fairly frequently. To help paint that picture and what it means and the toll it will take on you as the children of, or most importantly, the parents, what their thoughts are when they hear these stories. Because they know it might be coming to them and probably in short order. All right, let's keep going. How are we doing on the phone there, Dave? Me and you and Dave and everyone else has been worried about the power outages associated with Muskrat Falls and the still completely unreliable Labrador Island link. All right, so we've heard from individuals, but we also are now hearing from Newfoundland Power. Of course, it's the primary distributor of electricity here in the province. They buy some 93% of their electricity from Newfoundland Labrador Hydro. The Labrador Island link... Well, the dam itself can produce, at maximum, 824 megawatts of electricity. The link has only been able to clear for continuous service upwards of 450 uh, megawatts. So Newfoundland Power says they've had instances where there's been a trip, whether it be because of the Maritime Link or the Labrador Island Link, and in some cases, 60,000 of their customers have been negatively impacted and the power's been out. So they would suggest maybe overnight testing to minimize the impact on retailers and shops and homes and individuals. Newfoundland Hydro says that's not a good idea. And here's some of the things they write to. They say, while overnight testing would help to minimize customer impact, this is not practical given a number of constraints. First, the next test during which Hydro will transmit 700 megawatts of electricity across the Labrador Island link requires the demand on the grid to be more than 11 or pardon me, 1,000 megawatts over 12-hour periods. Even during winter months, there's applicable risk, appreciable risk, pardon me, that these conditions would not be met during the overnight hours. So a little bit of a standoff, but Newfoundland Power, as the utility, quite concerned. So when that level of concern has made it for me and you and Liberty Consulting and the PUB, Newfoundland Power itself now speaking out about their worries about uh, power outages associated with that boondoggled yoke that is Muskrat Falls. All right, a couple of quick ones before we get to your call, which I'm very much looking forward to today. The meetings between the province's finance ministers and Deputy Prime Minister Christopher Freeland, who's also the federal finance minister, they begin today in Toronto. There's a lot on the table. Now, there's going to be some health care transfer talk, but of course that'll probably be shelved in large part until the first minister's meetings take place. I think it's next week or the week after. So they're all congregating there to talk about a bunch of stuff, but at the top of the agenda seems to be how this country will react to the American Inflation Reduction Act. The big issue there is investment. So the Americans have introduced 
uncapped tax credits. And this is all about transitioning to cleaner economy uh, south of the border and some very specific areas, whether it be critical minerals. And, you know, just remember to our most recent budget here in this country, there was tax credits for clean energy capital cost and for hydrogen production. So it doesn't seem like Canada can, can compete with the enormity, the scope and the scale of the Inflation Reduction Act. But we're going to have to do something. When they refer to the fact that this might create a gravitational black hole drawing so much more investment dollars to the United States and other countries and away from Canada, this is an absolute problem. We have big opportunities to have sub- domestic supply chain, for instance, regarding critical minerals. Only democratic country on the face of the earth with every mineral required to make batteries for your laptops, your cell phones, and ele- yes, electric vehicles. So we need to grab that opportunity and seize it. But the reference to the provinces having to step up their game, this is where it gets a little bit confusing for me. So if the federal government can't meet it on their own, and they're calling on the provinces to play a different or more prominent role, whether it be with critical mineral extraction and advanced manufacturing, but that is just under where they mentioned hydrogen production. Because the provinces told us that they will not be putting provincial monies into hydrogen projects, notably World Energy GH2, their ammonia plant and their green hydrogen that's going to be exported to the country of Germany. And of course, we can add to it 164 wind turbines. But the provinces told us that we're not going to see our provincial money go that way. There is absolutely a massive pot of money for the proponents, Mr. Risley and others, to get from the federal government. But there seems to be a bit of code here. I've seen people write and insinuate that the province will indeed play an active role financially and backstopping some hydrogen projects. I haven't been able to verify it in full, but when you hear comments like that coming from the Deputy Prime Minister, maybe, just maybe, there's going to be a change in tune based on these meetings when it comes to, in particular, hydrogen. We've already seen some monies flowing for junior mining companies to get more involved in uh, exploration for these critical minerals, and we do have major opportunities. Even when the federal government just mentions uh, Quebec and Ontario for these minerals, we've got them in droves here as well, so there's big opportunities there, and nothing's purely clean. That's absolutely true, as people point out. Okay, wanted to get this one out. There are a couple of good ones before we get to the break. Uh, let see, I've got to pull it up here. I took a picture of it earlier. It was 45 years ago today. That's not the picture. 45 years ago today, 1978, local punk band De Slime played their first gig, uh, which ended apparently in an almost uh, near riot. 45 years ago today. Now, coming in the spring of this year, a brand new De Slime vinyl album and a place in the Punk Rock Museum in Las Vegas. That's cool. Also, congratulations to the five nominees from this province. Got a Juno nod. And they include the Fortunate Ones, love them, nominated for Contemporary Roots Album of the Year for That Was You and Me, the Florian Hoffner Trio, of course, led by Memorial University Professor Florian Hoffner, nominated for Jazz Album of the Year for Desert Bloom, and comedian Matt Wright, my buddy, second time he's been nominated for a Juno Comedy Album of the Year for Here Live Not a Cat. Graphic designer Judd Haynes, awesome, nominated in the Album Artwork of the Year for his design of the Cuba Sonics or Cuba Songs, by the Cubasonics, and Susan Evoy, who we've already mentioned. She's a music teacher at Theresa's Elementary, St. Theresa's, and Waterford Valley High. Five nominees from the province. Pretty cool stuff there. And, you know, mentioning all these nominations, something may be a little bit off the beaten track today. And you can do it via Twitter, email, or even call. You know, I think it's time that we establish a Newfoundland Labrador Music or Performing Arts Hall of Fame or Walk of Fame. And you want to tell me who you think should be on it? I think that would be a bit of fun here on this 
cool Friday. And good luck and safe travels to all the Newfoundland Labrador under-13 AAA uh, teams that are heading to the famous Spud Tourney on Prince Edward Island this weekend. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openlinevocm.com. Let's go to the break, and when we come back, we're speaking with you on the topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one caller. You're on the air. Good morning. Good morning to you. Um, I'm calling with regards to a question with regards to the oil, uh, whereas the prices fluctuate every week. So my question is, if I call the uh, if I call say I'll just use Irving as an example. If I called Irving this morning and I ordered oil, and say it was a dollar a liter, when it gets delivered on Friday, whatever Friday's price is, that's the price I would have to pay. Correct. That's right. As far as I know, yes. So my question to you is: If I ordered oil today, I paid for that oil today at a dollar a liter. That oil goes up on Friday to a dollar fifty a liter. What should I have to pay? Well, I, I think what you end up paying is the price on day delivery. Why, if I already paid for the oil, if I paid, if they accepted my money at a dollar a liter? Wait now, but just one second. You can prepay for oil. Oh yes, I, I do it all the time. Oh, I, I see. I, I don't even know that. I oh, all yeah. I know is when I get the bill, I, I pay the bill. So you're telling me I can call the oil company, say I want five hundred dollars or whatever number worth of oil. Here's my credit card. Here's my credit card. Okay. I'll, I'll pay for it today. So that's my question. If I if I call Irving and I tell him I want fifty liters of oil, like you said, five hundred dollars, I pay for it today. My oil is paid for. It shouldn't have nothing to do with delivery. That, that's their problem, not mine, when they can deliver it. But I paid for that product. That is my oil that I purchased from you. Why should they be able to come on Friday or whenever they can deliver it and then look at me and say, well, you owe us X amount of dollars because today's prices went up? So I'm just a little bit confused here now, unfortunately. So you've already made the payment, but you're telling me that when the oil gets delivered, you get an additional bill if the price has changed upwards? If the oil went up from the day I purchased it to the day it's delivered, if it went up 50 cents on a liter and I ordered 50 liters, I'm paying an extra 50 cents on those 50 liters. On the day of delivery. Well, here's another question for you, because overnight uh, furnace oil went down uh, about 16 cents. So was the opposite true, that if the price no, is lower... Oh, just well, one second. That, that, well, I, I can see where you're going with that, but that, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for whether it went down or not. I'm looking for when I purchase that oil, that's my oil. I paid you for that oil at this amount. Yes, How, I know. I heard that part. How can they charge me the price if it went up by the time it's delivered? Yeah, all I was adding to it is the exact same question, is what happens if it went down? Do I get more oil? You know, so I think that's the, it's pretty much the same question. Uh, but I didn't even know that to be true, that you could pre-purchase oh, the yeah. oil. So what I'll oh. do, I've got contacts in that world. I'm just going to ask them to answer both those questions. How can you justify... I called the oil company this morning, and I gave her the same scenario. I said, if I order oil today, and uh, it doesn't get delivered till two or three days later, and the oil went up, what do I pay? She said, you pay that day's price. I said, so if I order oil today, and I pay you for that, the cost of the price for today, 
what do I pay on Friday? She said, you pay whatever it is for that day. I said, that's not right. I paid you for that oil already. That's my oil. You accepted my payment. Yes, I know. Well, I've heard that that much, yeah. So like, initially you asked me how much you pay, and I said you get you pay the price on delivery. I didn't yeah. realize that you could be charged additionally if the price changed. It's not your fault. And same thing exactly. if the price went down. Do I get more oil? Exactly. Yeah. That, that's what I don't understand. Okay. Like, it's not fair. That's, it's not fair. It's, I should only have to pay whatever that oil bill was when I paid for that, when I ordered it and I paid for it. I shouldn't have to pay if it went up or it went down. It doesn't matter. I I still should get that oil at that price. Yes, it'd be nice if I could get it cheaper if it went down, but I know that's not happening. Apparently the cutoff is... Okay, last word to you. I have to go. That's it. That's all I want to know. I want to know, can can they legally charge me the price of the oil on delivery if it went up where where I already paid for it the day that I ordered it. It's probably part of your contract with whoever you buy your oil from. But I look at mine because, curiously enough, I've got a furnace uh, inspection coming up, so I have to dig out my contract, see if there's any reference to that in the relationship I have with my oil provider. So let me see what I can find out, and I'll also reach out to the company directly to answer both those questions. How's that? God love you. Thank you very much. Appreciate the time. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, take it before the break, Dave. I should, hey? Let's go to line number two and say good morning to Memorial University of Newfoundland Faculty Association member and the former president of the or former president and VP of the Canadian Association of University Teachers. That's Robin Whitaker on two. Good morning, Robin. You're on the air. Oh, hi, Patty. Great to talk to you. I'll just say I'm not a former president of the Canadian Association. I'm a former president of MUNFA, but I am vice president of the Canadian Association of University. Thanks for clearing up that clumsy introduction. I appreciate it. No worries. No are, worries. Are you on a cell phone or a speaker or something? It sounds quite hollow. Uh, I'm on, on a cell phone, yeah. I'll, I'll move. Uh, is this any better? Do a little bit of shuffling. We'll see if we can get uh, maximum audio here. Okay. I'm... Uh, any better? <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit better. Let's get going. So right okay. off the bat, I know this is not the major theme of why the strike action was taken, but does the Faculty Association have any reaction to the fact that the nursing uh, gra- nursing uh, potential graduates in May have now been able to resume their clinical placements? Does that give the Faculty Association any pause for concern? Uh, yes, um, obviously we're, we're concerned about it and we're looking further into what's going on there. Um, I think the only thing I can say right now as I'm you know, not uh, once the executive now, is that um, we our members in nursing, our MUNFA members in nursing, have our full support. Union is behind them 100%. So we are concerned, but we need to look into it further and find out exactly what's going on there. Okay. For me, I've been trying to follow along as best I can with the stance that both sides are taking, but there's been some contradictory numbers that have been thrown around. For instance, what pay increases have been offered, what that impact would be for the future for tenure-track professors. The university said one thing, the Muse cleared it up and said that's absolutely not true, backed up by information provided by you. What's the real number? Oh, uh, you know, on the latest uh, offer from from the university, is that what you're wondering? Yeah, because, I mean, I've heard 12% over four years, 6% in the first year, what that impact will be on the eventual salary for tenure-track professors. The university says one thing, the Muse story that I read said another. Okay, well, I think uh, it's important to know, first off, that at this point, the impasse is not over salaries. It's over other issues that are, you know, core principle issues for us. So this is is not, at at the moment, a strike over salaries. 
Uh, I think the numbers, the percentages you gave, the the 12% over four years is is what the latest offer was. What kind of impact that has is going to depend on uh, where people are, obviously, on the salary scale. I think that one thing uh, that hasn't been reported clearly enough is that we have a lot of members who are on contracts. They aren't permanent, so they get their contracts, uh, you know, every four months or eight months, sometimes every year. Very rarely they get a three-year contract. That, that those almost never happen. Um, and their their salaries are capped much lower than tenure stream faculty. So for those people, that salary increase uh, means you know obviously much more. We have members who are making more with strike pay right now than they would be getting through their pay packet from Munza or from from Memorial. I'm sorry. So you know I think uh, it, there's a lot of nuance to this, and and obviously there's a bit of a you know, this is an information, uh, I'm not going to say an information war. We ultimately, we're, we're professors, we want, to, we want the evidence. But I think that, um, you know, it's important to know that the whole picture is more complex than, than some of the stuff that's been thrown out. Well, that's what I'm trying to get down to, the brass tacks of exactly what's going on here. So yeah. inside these negotiations, inside collective bargaining, is the ask or the demand for per course instructors to have their, their relationship changed entirely so that there will be, so, say, for instance, a deadline for permanent contracts so it's not an annual worry or wonder whether or not you're coming back. So how do you actually address that per course instructor, the folks who don't have the type of protections that you might have? Um, well, we don't represent per course instructors. Uh, that's a different union, Lumen. We are very concerned about their situation. They, they're paid essentially on a kind of piecework basis. They're paid for the course, and their rates are if not the lowest, very close to the lowest in the whole of the country. If you look at how much work they do and what they get paid, you know, their their pay is abysmally low. They get paid, uh, you know, less than $6,000 for a course, 5000 and and depending exactly where they are, you know, something over 5000 So we are trying to uh, address that through our through our collective agreement as, as best we can because this is not good for anybody. It's certainly, certainly not worst of all for them, but uh, it's not good for anybody when you have massively underpaid uh, university instructors. For our own members, the issue is that many of them have no path to being converted to a permanent status. So what we're looking for there uh, is uh, both a, a longer contract for them so that they, they're actually paid for all the work they do. They, they don't get paid for class preparation ahead of time or, or sometimes grading that happens after the semester is over. But we also want uh, a clear way for those people to, to be able to be converted to uh, the tenure stream if that's what they want to do, you know, after they put in a certain amount of time at the university. You know, obviously the university needs them if they keep hiring them over and over again. What's the concern regarding post-retirement health benefits? So that is, I think, a, a really significant issue. Uh, the university, our employer, has asked us to accept um, significantly uh, eroded benefits for new members. So that would mean that people who are currently uh, employed in the plan have access to one set of health benefits after retirement. Uh, you know, our group plan, Blue Cross. Um, while the other, while new members would have to be employed for a much longer period, and that that again goes back to those contract people whose. Uh, whose employment is continually interrupted. So those people would have to put in much more time in terms of, you know, years to, to qualify for post-retirement health benefits. And we all know this is an equity issue. I mean, if you have a pre-existing condition, 
it's either extraordinarily expensive or almost impossible to get uh, health insurance privately. So we could be talking about, you know, disabled members, somebody who has diabetes, all kinds of things, running into problems at retirement. Our, uh, as one member uh, put it to me the other day, you know, what we're after here is no member left behind. We, we want equity and we, we don't want to see this uh, kind of division within our own ranks. As stated by the Canadian Association of University Teachers, collegiality is the full participation of academic staff in the institutional processes that shape the conditions of academic work. Okay, so in the envelope of collegiality, or collegial governance, what exactly are you asking for? So I think there's two things that we're proposing in bargaining, and I, there's been a bit of confusion over this uh, because people are talking about a need to change the, the MON Act so that we can get um, seats at the Board of Regents, and that's a really critical issue for us, but that's not part of the negotiation because obviously, you know, MON administration can't just snap its fingers and change the MON Act. There are things they could do in the interim, including around the Board of Regents, we think. But what we're looking for is a definition of collegiality in our collective agreement, something along the lines of what you just read out. Um, you know, negotiations are negotiations. If, uh, if the, the university is serious about improving the way the university works, and we've seen lots of examples of how it's not working well lately, the most, uh, you know, the one that most people in the public will know about is how the decision was made to get rid of the Ode to Newfoundland in convocation. You know, that, that didn't work out very well for, 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 the, for management or for, for administration because they took that decision on their own without talking to people they should have talked to. Had they done that, they may have made a different decision and they wouldn't be facing the kind of, uh, you know, reaction that people have had to that. Uh, so we're looking for a definition that would show that the university is serious about having conversations with academic staff members about how the university is working and how we can make all those decision-making processes stronger. We're also looking for greater information sharing from the university, uh, things that affect the working conditions of academic staff, um, you know, particularly in relation to agreements with government and so on. But So those are the, the two things that we're asking for there. What else should we know about university governance? Because I did read the article in the, in the Independent. It was quite comprehensive. Mm -hmm. So the ode to Newfoundland and the retreat to Fogo Island, those types of things that grab headlines. What, mm -hmm. what else inside university governance is on the table? And George, if you had George Rothers, would be part of the definition. Right. Well, it's things like the relationship between Senate and the board. How effective is Senate? Uh, Senate, you know, makes decisions about core academic issues in, in the university. Um, you know, is Senate getting all the information it needs? Uh, is it being included in the conversations it needs to be about priority setting? You know, uh, we can sort of say, oh, you know, the board looks after the financial matters. But, uh, you know, those things are not separate from academic issues. That's part of our, our working conditions. It's part of uh, the students' learning conditions, too. And uh, actually, I just wanted to say while I'm talking of students, the support from our students has been massive and it's meant so much. Um, but, you know, th so those kinds of decisions, how academic administrators are selected. Um, we see a situation at Memorial right now where half the administration is in an interim role, an acting role. Mm -hmm. That is not serving the university well. Clearly, there's something wrong with the way we're doing things right now. So we're looking for, you know, the ability to be seriously engaged in not simply on the on the, a selection committee that's, uh, where the process is predetermined and we don't have any say over whether we hire an executive search firm from the mainland to, to run the search for us. We should be involved in those discussions, 
you know, is this going to be a search where the finalists make a presentation to the university community so that that people can provide input? All those kinds of things uh, would fall under that um, that broad, you know, umbrella of collegial governance. So all the things that we've talked about and the role that the province may have to play with an amendment to the Act to see one or more seats, when I hear you correctly, uh, on the mm-hmm. Board of Regents. But there's also mention of board reform. I mean, that would be the long row to hold. There's, I would imagine, a variety of complexities associated with that. So how does that factor into the off-ramp for a resolution here? Because is it a pledge to board reform? Is there an agreement in principle or memorandum of understanding that would suffice? Because that issue is as tangly and as wide as it is broad. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, we don't want to, I've, I've said it's more important to get these things right than it is to get them fast. And board reform, you know, there's a lot of complex issues there to think about. Not all of them have to be addressed through legislative changes. Some of them are about, you know, the way the board is operating right now, how much information it's sharing with Senate and with other, you know, core bodies. Um, Laurentian University is a great example of what can happen. I mean, it's a terrible example, but, you know, it's an example of what happens when you don't have adequate uh, uh, transparency and oversight going on. So, um yeah, I mean, I think uh, a pledge to say we're, we're serious about looking at this and we're going to take seriously the input of um, academic staff members. You know, after all, students and faculty are the heart of the university, you know, and uh, there's, no, there's no university without students and without faculty. We need to be at the table contributing to these decisions, not under conditions that, you know, hamstring us in terms of how we can have an effect on how things are running. Last one. How long will the strike have to last for your for the Faculty Association to think that the winter semester is lost? Oh my, that's a good question. I mean, we've heard, uh, <laughs> it's been really disappointing to hear that the administration seems so laid back about this issue. We know that students are anxious. They want to get back from the classroom. So do we. I mean, this is a thing I think, you know, a lot of people don't understand. We love our jobs. <laughs> we love uh, teaching students. I mean, there's all kinds of ways to address that question. There's a, you know, there's a mid-semester break that there might be some um, flexibility around. Um, you know, we've already seen the ability to cope with things like the pandemic and with um, with Snowmageddon. So I, I you know, I, I hesitate to answer that question in any kind of firm way. The one thing I will say, though, in terms of the length of the strike is, our members are really determined that we're going to get a good settlement that will improve the university. Spirits are high. Public support has been massive. Support from other unions has been phenomenal. And that includes, um, you know, we have buying tickets in today from Canadian Association of University teacher member unions from all across the country. So they're here showing support. And, like, once again, I just can't underline enough. The support from our students has been so amazing. I go around all the picket lines every day, every single one. There's students standing alongside faculty. They're bringing us coffee. They're bringing us food. They're, you know, making, waving their own signs. I mean, that amount that that kind of reinforces our determination and, and our sense that, yes, we are right on this. We're doing something that it's not just for us. It's for the health of the university, which is our province's university. You know, it means so much to this province to have memorial and have memorial working as well as it can. Appreciate the time this morning, Robin. Thank you very much. Anytime. Thanks, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. That's Robin, uh, Robin Whitaker. She's a member of MUNFA.
former president and the VP of the Canadian Association of University Teachers. Let's take a break. Uh, oh, very quickly, there's a sixth Juno nominee here in the province. Becca Sims out in Mount Pearl nominated for Classical Composer of the Year. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go line number one. Rita, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Yes, I'm calling about, I uh, heard that lady calling in about the oil. Yep. Yeah, the same thing happened to me there two weeks ago. Yeah, I called it in, um, I phoned it in in the morning. And um, it went up like 20 cents or something that night. And I uh, I was charged for the, you know, the higher price. Yeah, so apparently what it is, it's very fundamental in that mm-hmm. when you prepay for it, you simply get a credit. So whatever the delivery price is, the day of delivery, yeah. you'll get that, that amount of oil based on the numbers of dollars that you put down in a form of credit. Yeah, fair enough. Oh, I see. Yeah, because when I listened that morning and I heard it was down and, you know, I said, well, this is a good time to order. So I, you know, and I asked her the price and she said like 147 a litre or something like that. Okay. That's what it was on a Thursday morning. And that night it went up. Like like I said, twenty cents or something more. So that's what I I was charged the delivery price. Yeah. Yeah, because I guess there would be a floating, moving target as to when the oil would be finally delivered in the first place. So yeah, yeah that's the, the it's floating in here just about from. Well, I guess I got a couple of dozen messages since that call yeah. that you just bought a credit. You didn't buy any oil. It's not your oil until oh, it hits I, your tank. Apparently so, and that's like the I, feels unfair. But I guess that's it. Yeah, I called another oil company and they said the same thing, right? And I said, well, last year I um I asked um you know about the same thing, and she said, oh, you'll get it for the day's price, but. Then when I told her that, she said, oh, well, that's been changed since last year, you know. That's what they told me. Yeah, and then the other confusion that people have is, you know, just how much oil you have to buy for them to even deliver. And the reason there is so many of the delivery truck drivers are subcontractors. So for them to make it worth their while to make your delivery, they need to deliver X amount of oil so they actually make some money themselves. Yeah, but I was getting the tank filled up, so that cost a lot more when it was... Oh, yeah. 20 cents more later, yeah. Well, I just wanted to tell you that. I appreciate making time for the show. Thank you, Rita. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Yeah, so I guess it's as simple as that, as frustrating as that might be, is that if you order the oil on Tuesday, you pay for it on Tuesday, you simply got a credit. Let's just say with whatever company. It's Company X. I have a, a credit with Company X, and when they go to deliver the oil, if I put $500 on my MasterCard, then I get $500 worth of oil, whatever the price of oil is, the day the truck pulls up in front of your house. Uh, and then, of course, hose delivery. Let's take a break, try to get back on track here. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Well, it's Black History Month here. And uh, social activist Laura Bell Imba is working on a project associated with Black History Month, and Laura Bell joins us on line number three. Good morning, Laura Bell. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. So nice to talk to you. Happy to have you on the show. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. It's, very, it's a busy month ahead of us, but it's a good month. No doubt it is. Talk about the project you're working on. So I am currently working with municipalities in Canada and Labrador for an opportunity to profile black people within the province who are making contributions big and small, just to make Newfoundland and Labrador a better and more welcoming place for everyone. Give us an idea of some of the names that have already been submitted and things they've been working on. Oh my gosh, so it's fantastic to talk about some of the names that have been submitted. We have um, another social activist within the city of St. John's, Cassandra Drodge, who works with the Social Justice Co-op. 
So she's working on a lot of stuff with the fisheries and kind of building there. We have Isaac Adelowo, who is in tech, who has a tech company that's out of St. John's as well. Um, we have a couple others. So we have Boydetta Cueco, who a lot of people should know and love by now, mm-hmm. who is the CEO of Sharing Our Cultures and talking about her work and how she got to St. got to Newfoundland Labrador and the work Sharing Our Cultures is doing to promote diversity within Newfoundland and Labrador as well. And, and of course, those are pro- people. Oh, I'm sorry. Those are provincial names. But tell us a little bit about Rosemary Brown. Rosemary Brown. Oh, so that is part of me just kind of, we know the Canadian education system hasn't done a great job in showcasing black history other than slavery and the civil rights movement, which predominantly happened in the U.S. But Rosemary Brown is a woman from British Columbia who was the first black woman who was elected into the parliament in BC. She was part of the MDP. She was also the first black female leader of a national party. Amazing stuff. You know, there's been lots of controversial conversations, and a lot of it comes from the United States, which just seeps into the psyche of Canadians, whether it be right or wrong. It just happens. It's a natural... Uh, it's a natural osmosis. So, you know, all the issues about critical race theory, even though people talk about that in completely uninformed fashion, you know, when we talk about black history in this country, if you had to grade it from A to a failing mark of F, where are we? Oh, I would give us a C. Okay. A solid C, because there is a lot that's currently being done to incorporate black history into school curriculums, into society as a whole, but there's still a long way to go in just seeing black history as more than civil rights movements or the slave trade. And I like what I want people to know is like black history is Canadian history. Black people are woven into the fabric of Canadian history as a whole. So just thinking of it in just those two subsegments does a disservice to us looking at our history as Canadians, as Newfoundlanders, and as people. And let's talk about it, uh, just say, current day. You know, when we talk about diversity, and, you know, there's all sorts of comments out there that get latched on to and are used for political ideology or political bent, but diversity is an interesting one because people sometimes stand back and think about it. Well, if you're from the Middle East, you're from the Middle East, regardless of your country of origin, your actual religion or what have you. If you come to the province or the country and you're black, well, all black people are the same. But the diversity inside the black community, I think gets lost in the conversation because not every black person has the same background, whether it be their religious ideology, their political ideology, the countries they've come from, wars they've experienced. So talk about diversity just inside the black community because I don't think that ever becomes part of the larger conversation. So I think it's very important because people do tend to think once you're black, that's all you are and there's no kind of subsections in black experiences and black identity. But being black, you can be from anywhere in the world. There are people who are from South America who happen to be black and their black experience is very different than people who happen to come from Africa or the Caribbean or people who are American-based black. So I think it's very interesting when black is a great way to acknowledge a giant group of people but our experiences are very vast and our identities are very vast. The same way when someone would say, oh, you're white, but you wouldn't call someone European different from someone who's North American. You wouldn't call someone who's Spanish and white the same as someone who's Eastern European and white. You acknowledge those differences, but people tend to forget those same complex ideologies and differences also exist within the black community. Okay, so to submit uh, names to you and your project, 
how does that process work and what are timelines for this to be you know come to its culmination and a release how's that all going to look when it's all rattled uh, it's all wrapped up so we've gotten a couple we've gotten a lot of submissions currently but if people do still want to submit more they have until the end of next week to get them to me they're able to email me the person if they have the person's name and bio that would be fantastic and a way for me to contact the individual whose name they're submitting to Laura Bell, L-A-U-R-A-B-E-L, at laurabellmba.com. And that's a great way to email me their name and the person's contact information, and then I can follow up with them to make sure that they want to participate. It's also important that people realize it's great to submit someone's name, but if the person doesn't want to be involved, that we are going to respect their privacy and we're not going to profile them if they're not ready to be profiled. Sounds good. Uh, so it's Laura Bell at laurabellmba.com if you'd like to do exactly that. We look forward to the project upon its release. And thanks for making time for us this morning. No problem. It's a pleasure. Take good care. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. That's Laura Bell Emba. If you want to make those suggestions, put forward a name so that they can be uh, contacted to see if they'd actually like to see their profile as part of this project, you can do exactly that. Let's go to line number one. Brian, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Doing okay. How are you doing? I'm doing good. You know, um, I heard a bit of a news item today. Now, it didn't come up in the House of Commons yesterday. It hasn't been talked about on Canadian television, but it was talked about on Morning Joe this morning on MSNBC. He was, uh, he was all excited because the Americans have discovered that the Chinese have been floating a balloon over Dakota, and he, he believes that it's nefarious. He also said it also blew over Canada. Did you hear anything about that, Patty? Yeah, I've read a couple of stories on it. Uh, and I guess the reason it hasn't been covered so widely in Canada is because we, doesn't seem like, but I mean, we can't, you know, ignore the fact that Chinese, the Chinese are bad actors on these fronts. But yeah, the U.S. has been tracking it. They refuse to shoot it down. And they're calling it a surveillance balloon or a spy balloon. I don't know what the right word is. But, you know, then Beijing's comment on it is that they have no intention on violating uh, the Americans' airspace, but yet here they are. So what's going on, what they're actually doing, I don't know. They say, you know, try to bring forward a sense of calm. And it's hard to trust the Chinese on this. No intention of violating the territory and airspace of any sovereign country. China is a responsible country, they say, and will always have strictly abided by international laws. Well, we know that hasn't been true in the past. Well, Pally, we know where the, where, the, uh, where the virus came from, and Chinese did nothing about that. And what would happen? If Canada sent a balloon over Beijing, it'd be shot down. There'd be hell to pay. You're, you're darn right. Uh, thank you for allowing me to come out on your show this morning, Patty, and God bless you. I appreciate the time, Brian. Take care. Yeah. Okay, bye bye. That is a wild story, though, isn't it? Because, you know, you mentioned the origins of uh, the coronavirus. And, you know, I don't think the Chinese have ever let any international investigators to this day come in to get a better understanding of what the heck is going on. So. You know, they are, that's one country that is just sitting back and watching whatever you want to refer to it as the proxy war or the Russian invasion of Ukraine to destabilize the world, which it has in some form. The Chinese sitting back, and I would imagine rubbing their hands together in glee. And we know we've got lots of concerns here with the Chinese government here in this country, whether it be the 
the spying that they have done here, whether or not they've been uh, noodling around on the edges of elections. And, of course, we've seen the Canada Investment Act push them out of the country. They had uh, Chinese national investment in three critical mineral companies, and we, we shoved them out. China really rules the roost in a lot of those things. They produce very little of those precious critical minerals, but they do an awful lot of manufacturing. So they are, you know, if we're talking about superpowers and who's really holding a big stick, there's probably no bigger stick in this world held right now than China. Anyway, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about some of the moves that have been made to address the backlog of people needing uh, critical cardiac care. It's Heart Force One, people being flown into St. John's to go to the catheterization lab. Whether or not it's a great idea, for Dr. John Connors, he thinks it's excellent. We should be able to clear up the backlog, day a fly-in and fly-out on the same day arrangement. We'll hear from Jordan Brown on the topic right after this. Of course, he's the NDP member for Lab West. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to Irish NL at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the NDP member for Lab West. That's Jordan Brown. Jordan, you're on the air. Thank you, Patty, for having me this morning. Happy to do it. So the you know the travel orthopedic surgery teams, I think, are helpful. Just chipping away at backlogs. This fly in and fly out for a cardiac catheterization for cardiac patients has been received as a very good idea. You know, it takes people out of a hospital bed. It gets them in the churn much quicker. But you have some logistical concerns with it. Yeah, absolutely. So so one of the things that came up and, and I noticed is right now, like I said, they're going to take a nurse out, say, so I'll give a good example. So I had an individual waiting up here for weeks, weeks, and obviously you need to get for catheterization. Um, so I was, I was talking back and forth with the, uh, with the individual, and they were telling me, um, one, maybe two nurses available on the ward. Um, you know, delays getting, you know, down to uh, the, the diagnosis, everything like that. And then, obviously, they get flown out. But they took a nurse from the hospital that's already short-staffed of nurses to go with them for 21 hours. So then everyone else in that area was obviously down to one nurse, and one was gone for 21 hours to do this thing. So this is what my, my concern, one of my first concerns is, we're robbing Peter to pay Paul. And right now, I don't have enough nurses in Laver West or over in Happy Valley Goose Bay to actually deal with the day-to-day of these hospitals. These people are working incredible hours, and now we're going to start taking them out to fly with these patients. And this is where I'm having an issue with it is we're, we're you know, like I said, we're robbing Peter to pay Paul in this information. And then, like you said, you're expected to go and be gone for 21 hours, 22 hours uh, with these patients when we could have done the logistics on – having a team set up just to come get these people and not having to affect my hospital or Happy Valley Goose Bay um, with, these, with, these, uh, with this program. It's, um, you know, it's uh, the logistics of it and, and the foresight of it is that I'm now, and my hospitals now, are going to have to uh, put more work onto less, uh, less individuals uh, for this one-off program. How do you strike that balance between, you know, a staffing issue in the hospital where you live versus the need for the individual patient to get this dye test done, to get them potentially out of a hospital bed, out of an acute care bed, to get in the churn for eventual treatment, because the longer they wait, potentially the worse the worse their symptoms become for very serious illness and or, you know, the end result could be death. So how do you strike that balance between a staffing shortage and people's health? Obviously, it's going to get worse because you know why? These nurses are going to quit is what's going to happen. And they're already to their limit 
We all know it. I've talked to them. I've, I've talked to nurses who had their time in, and the first t- chance they got to put in the retirement papers, they were gone. Um, you know, I've had uh, nurses who said, you know, they walked in, went in, went to work, and basically turned around, and now they're gone to work in the mines. So, you know, Patty, it, the balance is long-term versus short-term. And right now, if we're going to add more workload onto the nurses without any foresight, who's going to want to go work in the hospital? Because this is what the thing is. You've got to strike the balance of, you know, these are people. These are human beings working in these, in the, in these conditions. Yes, we understand that, you know, there's a situation of, you know, healthcare and everything like that. But if there's no one to work in the healthcare system, there is no healthcare system. And this is where I'm, my first my, my concern is, is this. And then you lay, lay this on top of the fact that I can't get an air ambulance up here uh, in any decent set of time because, one, staffing shortages and logistical shortages that are causing that now. People waiting an extended period of times for air ambulances and transfers. I got, you know, I don't have enough nurses up here. I don't, I, I don't, right here up in Lab West, I don't have a respiratory therapist. We've had one for 30 plus years. Now I don't even have one because of the work-life balance, because of the conditions that are working in these hospitals right now. So this is this, this thing that our strike patty is. We're going to add all these programs. We're going to add all this extra workload onto people, but we got no people to, to carry the burden. So what's going to happen? Everyone's going to quit. Based on your understanding, you know, this is there's an assessment tool used to say who should be eligible, who can avail of this particular Heart Force One program. Does that include addressing staffing issues in one region or another? Do you happen to know? From my understanding, no. Uh, from my understanding of everything that was announced is that they're going to take a nurse at each stop, and this is and this is the thing that I don't have. We don't have the staff to share for this kind of stuff. And I understand, like you're trying to get backlogs, and I understand this. But but at what cost? At what point do we say you're making the uh, the the human resource issue worse? And there is no addressing the human resource issue. There was supposed to be a plan done, Patty, a couple of years ago on addressing a lot of the work, uh, uh, the HR issues and the workforce issues in, in the healthcare system, but it never ever came to fruition. And now you have HR issues. You have, you know, a lot of these uh, healthcare professionals crying foul at management, saying, you know, we're, we're we're expected to do this, we're expected to do this. There's no outlines, there's no guidelines, there's no this. Right. So now we have. A huge human resource issue, and this is the thing: How are we going to have all these grads, all these new healthcare professionals coming to the system when they get into the system and realize, whoa, 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 what's 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 going on here? And, and that's the thing: we we, ha- we want them to come in and also come into a professional and well-run system. We don't want them to come into the chaos that we got now. Well, that's one of the concerns, even from nursing students, is that you know they want to pursue a career as a nurse, but when they hear the stories, now they're thinking, "What am I getting myself into?" So this might add to that pile. Uh, out of the twenty-five patients that have been transported on three separate occasions already, have any of them come from Labrador? Yes, a few have come from Labrador, um, and uh, you know I had one individual wait three and a half weeks uh, before Heart Force One showed up. So you know it, it, it's. Uh, on paper, it makes sense. Yes, understandably. Yes, it makes sense. But when it comes to the human resource factor, there's a lot of concern here because I just don't have the staff in Labrador West to go for 21 hours. And then on top of that, just the human resources, th- this individual the nurse will go for 21 hours, come back, and is probably expected to work the next day. So, you know, this is this is the thing that if you're going to address this, have its own team. Have its own professionals that fly around the province and do this. Don't be robbing from my hospitals here and putting the rest of my patients in, in worse shape. And half of them up there are waiting on an air ambulance that's 
delayed and delayed and delayed. So this is the thing that I, 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 my, my people don't have timely access. And then you create this program that, yes, on paper sounds great. But at the same time, what about the pa- my patients that are up there that for other things have been waiting days and weeks for to get out to? And I have an air ambulance that, yes, it's there. It's great. Wonderful. But there's always staffing shortages with it. There's always logistical shortages with it. There's always this. And none of it has ever been addressed. Not a single iota of it has ever been addressed. Yeah, the the thought of a dedicated team to this program all it certainly does make sense. Maybe it's a massage they can make, but of course, I don't think that eliminates a staffing issue wherever that dedicated nurse and or other healthcare professionals come from, because there's a shortage where you live, there's a shortage where I live. So I don't even know if there's a massage that would eliminate it. Maybe I guess we just prioritize where the sta- where the staffing shortages are the worst where the potential for long-term pain is more apparent to, you know, come up with maybe a dedicated team. And I don't know if that's being considered as the concerns, whether it be from yourself or Mr. Dan or Mr. Brazel, about logistics have been brought to the fore. So we'll see where that goes. But uh, anything else you want to say about that this morning, jo- uh, Jordan? Pardon me? Well, I'll, t- I'll put this on top of the darn thing. So, they, they, yes, they addressed this Heart Force One thing, right? But they still haven't addressed any of the issues with the air ambulance. And they still haven't addressed any of the issues with MTAP. So I have other patients who get flown out for other things, and they don't have the option of being flown back the same day or the day after their thing. They're expected to be discharged from the hospital, fly home on their own dime, and then wait weeks and weeks and fight with MTAP just to try to get a few of their, uh, a few of their expenses covered. And that has never been addressed in the last four years that I've been asking for address- the changes to the MTAP program is still not addressed. So yes, you have one group of people with this Car, uh, catheter lab are going to get flown out and flown back on, on government time, you know, and as it showed, they should not have to pay for health care. And now there's a whole other group of people that are going to fly out on an air ambulance or something else, get treatment done, and then discharge it to the front doors of the health science center and said, good luck, hope you find your way home. And this is another issue that is not being addressed is the MTAP program. And I don't even know why that is such a hurdle, because if the money's going to flow, it's been approved. So if it's going to flow, whether it be today, 30 or 60 days from now, I'm not sure what the hang-up is there. So, you know, I mean, you have to apply for it. You have to be approved for it. We know in pretty much certain terms what it would be. So even if it was 75% cost coverage up front, and if there was some additional stay uh, and another day and some mileage or meals or hotels associated with it, that could be back-end stuff that you can address. So I'm really not quite sure with the same pot of money, whether I pay today or in 90 days, I'm not sure where the hang-up is because we're not talking about the government earning 2% in the savings account to try to make money on their own money. But this one, I've never really understood why we couldn't do it a little bit more efficiently. Uh, appreciate the time, Jordan. I'll just add to it. You know, remember when the negotiations, or not, I guess the conversation about building a new hospital in Cornerbrook, and all the fight was for uh, radiation treatments. When, you know, just something like a cath lab on the province's west coast to deal with backlog, to address geographical concerns and logistical concerns, I was always shocked that wasn't part of it because at the exact same time, there were two men in hospital beds in Cornerbrook waiting to their turn in St. John's. One of them passed. But no one but no one fought for cath lab. And we know the prevalence of heart disease in this province. Oh. I was just always shocked that that wasn't part of the conversation. I'll quickly add something to that, Patty. If they did put that in Cornerbrook, I can guarantee you that Labrador would have also used it in Cornerbrook. They, yeah. Most people from my regions here would rather go to the West Coast than go to St. John's. Well, that's why I brought it up, yeah. 
Yep, absolutely, Patty. You take care, my friend. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Jordan Brown, NDP member, Lab West. Uh, break time. When we come back, Doug Paulson is there. He's the executive director of End Homelessness St. John's. We'll hear from Doug right after this. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number four. Say good morning to the executive director at End Homelessness St. John's. That's Doug Paulson. Doug, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Doing very well. Thanks for asking. How about you? Good, thanks. Um, just wanted to call in and, and uh, know there's been a lot of uh, chatter and, and communication uh, with our team and, and folks around the community about, you know, how do we respond to, to emergency cold weather like we're, we're anticipating over the weekend. And, um, you know, while other regions have, you know, warming centers and, and, and cold weather responses, we haven't really had to think about that in many ways because, you know, our shelter systems have typically never been as full as they are. Um, but 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 there is, you know, that we have been working with the provincial government, with the city of St. John's, with Eastern Health and with uh, community partners as well, just to make sure that there there is a, a bit of a coordinated response in these types of incidents. And so um, while I can't share specific details, I can say that if there is anybody who's who's looking for space over the weekend, um, there is an emergency shelter line and they've they're looking to add capacity, um, you know, sort of as we speak this past week leading up to it. And, and that number, I can share that number with you, um, Patty. It's, it's 1-833-724-2444. And those folks will will try to support folks if they if they're uh, not already in a shelter, but they need access to, to space uh, to keep warm. Just to help paint the picture a little clearer again, September 29th of 2020, 71 people spending nights in shelters. October the 12th, 2022, 275 people, an increase of almost 300%. Okay. So we've heard, like we spoke with Paul Davis yesterday at the gathering place, and they are unfortunately turning people away some nights, uh, even on the coldest nights, you know, providing whatever they can. But, you know, Mm-hmm. There's an announcement now that the province is going to look to build a 30-bed emergency shelter, very likely in close proximity to the downtown of the capital city. Mm-hmm. It's good news, but it all still kind of feels like we're still chasing our tail a little bit. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to unpack in that in that comment there, Patty, because you're right. Like, there has been, you know, substantial increases in, in those who are known to be experiencing homelessness, and that's just what we know. Those stats are just what we know. Um, that doesn't include folks, you know, who are staying with friends or family, uh, fleeing violence always. Um, so, so this is what we know. And you know, the, there's a lot of there's a lot of factors that contributed to that through the pandemic, of course. Um, you know, during that same time, we saw the vacancy rate in St. John's go from you know over seven percent to now under three percent. So that pressure on the housing market uh, disproportionately affects those. Who, who have the least, right? So those, you know, who would be availing of income support and other rental subsidies, those those folks um, who may not have access to uh, additional tax credits or programs that a lot of families, uh, youth seniors may have. So there's a lot of factors there, but that downward pressure on the housing market has absolutely, you know, contributed to the experience of homelessness for so many. So, and then you're right, you know, there's a response now where there's an RFP put out uh, and it is a bit of a sort of bittersweet. It's good to see a response. But, but every dollar that we put into emergency responses like shelter is our dollars that we can't invest in housing, right? And, and what we really need is access to more affordable, more accessible housing. And, you know, we are talking about human beings, and it's, it's difficult to just go right to dollars and cents, but sometimes that tells the tale. 
I wonder what kind of analysis has ever been done about how much it costs for a city or the province to spend on emergency shelters to create more affordable housing versus the fractured landscape we have today. Little dribs and drabs of announcements regarding uh, 30 beds, 30 more beds coming. That's good, but, you know, how does that cost compare and what's the human toll when you also have the the hybrid landscape that includes for-profit emergency shelters, when you have operations like the Gathering Place and the funding that they have to scramble for, when you have organizations like yours, because we seem to have a very siloed approach, and I know there's no such easy solution as a one-size-fits-all, but we're spending monies in different areas, maybe not coming up with the cumulative positive outcome we had if we were a bit more focused here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know the role of our organization in, in supporting a lot of this. One of the main functions is the coordination, right? So the coordination of all the key key stakeholders involved here, governments, uh, you know, community organizations, to make sure when folks are are identifying into an organization or identifying into you know the NL Housing Emergency Shelter Line that that we can as a as a community respond accordingly and and try to provide support. So you know we do that by you know funding about 18 positions across 11 organizations here in St. John's and and coordinating with them to make sure that they're supporting folks who are who are you know in shelter primarily in shelter but who may be experiencing homelessness and you know what we are seeing is the capacity of those 18 positions there it's drying up because there's such a demand on it. So so we do need to continue coordination. That's that's something you know communities around the country are are, are grappling with. But I do I do hold that optimism that there's a lot of you know willingness and, and and interest in coordination and data sharing because we once we have a sense of the of the, the data and the evidence that we can use to inform how we fund positions, how we support the, the different types of shelter environments, and coordinating the response. You know, whether it's, you know, on a nightly basis or in cold weather, for example, uh, that's really what we need to do. And that's what we strive to do uh, with our organization. There's two different schools of thought, two different ways of looking at this issue. I think we seem to be going down this path. We're looking at creating additional supports uh, to keep up with the spike in the numbers of people requiring shelters versus trying to do what we have to do in form of public policy to reduce the number of people looking for a shelter. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and that's part of the coordination, right, Patty? Like when we speak with folks in, in government, that's, you know, that's what we're talking about is really what folks need is, is, is access to affordable housing. And, and there are programs that will allow folks to sort of get to market rent through the, you know, Canada Housing, uh, Newfoundland Housing Benefit Program. That's a rental subsidy, but but the reality is, you know, with the with the pandemic and the pressure on the housing market, it, it becomes really difficult for folks with limited income uh, to 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 get into a housing option right away. One of the programs that we run, we see this, we've seen this uh, this uh, really increase over the last uh, year year and a half is, you know, if somebody's in in a shelter, uh, and, you know, availing of income support, which primarily most folks would, you know, to get into a housing arrangement. Um, will require a security deposit, like like many of us in the in the house and rental market. The the provincial government provides three hundred seventy two dollars towards that. It's applied as a clawback, um, but oftentimes you're going to need up to seventy five percent of market rent, which would be you know six seven hundred dollars for a security deposit. So if you're only availing of three hundred seventy two dollars, where do you get the difference? And so our one of our programs has 
helped a lot of folks offset that difference by providing the cash directly to the landlord through the agencies that are supporting them just to top it up. Like that's a system level gap that, that we can solve, we are solving, but the demand on, on the system is just growing so at, at such rapid pace. So, you know, from a policy perspective, there's that. From a resource perspective, if we're building infrastructure like, like shelter, it, it has to be matched with support. It, it, if we don't do both, invest in both, then we're not going to solve for the problem at hand. Appreciate the time as usual, Doug. Thank you. Yeah, thanks again, Patty. Have a good You too. Bye. Doug Pawson, Executive Director at End Homeless in St. John's. Let's go to line number two. Benny, you're on the air. Hey, Patty. How are you today? Grand. How about you? Not too bad. Patty, I'm hearing a little bit of chatter uh, in regards to a possible uh, rebate check for this carbon tax coming down in April. Do you know anything about that? Or? I know a little bit about it, yeah. So the first impact we'll see the federal carbon tax will be in April, and that's about two cents on a, say, for instance, a liter of uh, gasoline. The first climate action incentive checks, is what, what they call them, uh, happens in July. So it depends on who you are and your actual status. Individual adults, you'll get a quarterly payment of $164. Uh, another $82 if a second adult lives in the home. Households can get $41 for each child who lives in the home. A family of four gets an annual payment of about $1,312. And that those checks begin to fly quarterly in July. Okay, sounds good. Because that, that, that tax is going to be uh, devastating for low-income families, eh? Well, I mean, the real problem for me is, I mean, I only talk to my own circumstances and the stories that I hear. It's applying the carbon tax to uh, home heating fuels, I think, is the major problem. Because, you know, we can all make certain adjustments in our world to drive a little less, but we can't do anything when we talk about heating our homes. There's just nowhere to turn. Yes, some families might be able to have the upfront money to put in new windows and more insulation and uh, fix all the drafts under doors, what have you, but it all costs money. So, I, of course, it's not going to help a lot of people who are already struggling today, but that's the implication, particularly on gas, is a couple of cents per liter. But on the carbon tax supply to home heating fuels, it's going to be the entirety of the carbon tax, which is at this point about 11 cents. So if I understand the situation correctly, it'll be about 13 cents in April. Sounds, sounds good then because, uh, yeah, there was a lot of, uh, lot of concern about that because that, that's, a, that's a hard hit, right? Like twenty percent, it's a hard hit. It is. I mean, certainly some of it. No matter what political party you support, some of it is indeed offset with a rebate check that's coming. But there's still upfront costs that have to be considered, and that's some of the opposition to the carbon tax in full. I don't even know if the current federal scheme is the best plan, period, for pricing pollution. But that's the basics of it, Benny, as I understand it. Sounds good, Petty. Uh, that clarifies a lot. And uh, love your show, and take care, man. Thanks, man. Appreciate the time. Yeah, okay, all the best. Bye bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking mackerel. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The cabin party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. And welcome back. Uh, let's go. Line number six came over to the executive director at CNL. That's Ryan Clary. Ryan, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Do you and your listeners? Thanks for taking the call. Happy to do it. Patty, I'm calling in about Atlantic Macro, um, which you mentioned right off the top of the show. Uh, the fact that news broke yesterday about how the United States has set a quota, uh, an Atlantic Macro quota for this year, for 2023, at just over um, 3,600 tons. This, that's for this year, and that's a cut from the almost 5,000 ton quota the U.S. took last year. 
Now, Canada, for the information to your listeners, uh, Canada, Newfoundland, Labrador, uh, fishes the same mackerel stock, but Canada brought down a moratorium on mackerel last year. So the U.S. fished mackerel last year. Canada, Newfoundland, and Labrador fishermen did not. I call that a senseless sacrifice. Other fishermen in the Maritimes call it a useless sacrifice. The fact there was a Canadian moratorium last year when the U.S. fished was not fair. It was the wrong decision from the get-go. And the point that I'm getting at now is the fact that um, last year the U.S. set a quota of 3,600 tons. uh, Or last year they set 5,000 tons. This year it's 3,600 tons. Canada has yet to make a decision on whether the moratorium will be lifted. We take the stand, the stand, CNL takes the stand that Ottawa must lift the moratorium and set a quota for Atlantic mackerel at least equal to the quota set for Atlantic mackerel by the United States. It's the fair thing to do. It's the right thing to do. Uh, Canada should not have shut down that fishery last year in the first place. Fair enough. Remains to be seen what uh, current minister, Joyce Murray, will think or do, but she had little, very little to say in reaction to what people were seeing in the bays as the mackerel seemed to be teeming in in pretty large numbers. Canada says that the stock is in a critical zone. You know, DFO, unfortunately, hasn't been able to do the kind of science that we need them to do, what they're, what they're mandated to do in the recent past. I don't know how that complicates this year's decision regarding mackerel, but it's a shared stock. I mean, that's one thing that Joyce Murray has asked for, is for it to be treated as a shared stock with joint management, which would make it much easier to come up with these determinations annually. But I don't know where it's going this year. Hey, you're right, Patty. Um, you made some good points. There were unprecedented schools of mackerel off the northeast coast this past fall, late right up to January. Mackerel were rolling on the beaches. Of course, fishermen were not allowed to, uh, to, to keep that mackerel for bait, which was ridiculous and, and another story. But from our perspective, it's important to have fishermen on the water to keep an eye on the stock. When, they, when Canada declared that moratorium uh, last year, it took our fishermen off the water. That means eyes were off the water. An, another finger on the pulse of that stock was gone. Uh, th- again, that gets back to the point about how it was the wrong decision from the get-go. But uh, again, we're... Canada is having, uh, the United States is having another quota this year. Canada, from our perspective, Canada should, should, have, should have no choice but to lift the moratorium and at least equal uh, the quota set by the U.S. Uh, Patty, I, I want to mention a second uh, thing uh, just quickly. I know you have a busy show. Um, and that is that I was at a meeting this week, Patty, of, um, in, in regards to 3PS cod. Now, that's the cod stock off southern Newfoundland. Um, there are three cod stocks adjacent to Newfoundland. One is the Gulf. One is 3PS or the South Coast. The other is Northern Cod 2J3KL. So there was an advisory meeting this past week, and advisory meeting basically means that you've got a bunch of the FAW, CNL, industry people, DFO people, everybody's in the room, and they come together to give advice, um, in this case for South Coast Cod, for 3PS Cod, on the quota for this year. Um, ultimately, um, what was recommended for the meeting was a rollover last year's quota of 1,346 tons. But the point I'm getting at is that usually in these adv- advisory meetings, Patty, the very first thing that they do is they, un- they, they roll out the latest science. In this case, the latest science on the 3PS cod stock. What was so unusual about the advisory meeting this week, uh, uh, Patty, was there was new- no new science. Um, no new science, period, because the uh, assessment for 3PS COD was cancelled last fall. And uh, I guess um, my message uh, in regards to 3PS is is a message for for people following other stocks, commercial stocks around Newfoundland. Uh, DFO science, because of problems uh, bringing new ships online, getting them calibrated with old 
um, DFO science ships or Coast Guard science ships. That hasn't been happening. The offshore surveys have not been done. This is going to be, uh, 2023 is going to be year of the question mark in terms of DFO science because the surveys were not done last year. They're basically, DFO is basically operating in terms of science off the seat of its pants. Uh, it, it's, it's ridiculous. So I've said before, there should be a, an external review of DFO science. But, but people better get ready for this year in terms of DFO science and the recommendations, because the bottom line is the science is not there like we need it to be. All three cod stocks, just cod stocks alone, Jason to Newfoundland, are in the critical zone. The fact that we don't have this critical DFO science finger on the pulse of, of, of the health and the state of, of those stocks is shameful. I don't know how else to put it, Patty. I'm not so sure there was any science done on that stock beyond the Sentinel fishery in the last couple of years, was there? Well, no, even with the Sentinel, that's a good point, Patty, because even with the Sentinel information, Sentinel is a test fishery. Yeah. And uh, there were points made at the 3PS stock assessment that these uh, Sentinel surveys, uh, they're happening in areas where there is no fish. The, the fish, the, the commercial fishermen would not set their gear there because there's no fish there. So the question of whether or not the Sentinel data is any good, there's a big fat question mark around that as well. Yeah, I mean, it's no sense doing science where the stock being evaluated isn't apparent. Uh, strange stuff. Same thing we did some of the foolish exercises that have been taken with seals, right? You know, you take a bunch to uh, investigate what's in the stomachs, but you leave them so long that by the time you get to them, it's been digested to the point where you can't recognize it or do any careful evaluation. It's all a little bit much. Uh, I, I, boy, I tell you what, I get the DFO scientists, I'm mad at me all the time. Eh, so be it, you know. Try, try and, to you know, it's, it's not personal against the DFO No, I, No, of course not. No, not in any way. And uh, when I went to that DFO meeting this week, I mean, nothing personal about anybody around the table, but the fact that DFO as an entity responsible for the management of our commercial fisheries is not doing the job, is not getting the science done, well, buddy, they need to be called out on it. And it is ridiculous, but it's DFO overall, nobody specific. No, of course not, because you know full well a scientist would like to be performing science. So if there's parts missing that you can't get some of the aging vessels out on the water or whatever, it's certainly no individual scientist's fault. So that's the point I try to make to them when they send me notes that are uh, voicing their displeasure. But that was just part and parcel. Uh, appreciate the time, Ryan. Thanks a lot. Thanks for the call, Patty. Have a good weekend. You too. Bye-bye. All right, I'll get some guidance here from David. Where would you like me to go here now, Dave? Okay. So, okay, come on in then. So Dave tells me that Brian Medor from VOCM News would like to join us for a moment before we take another caller. He's just making his way into the newsroom. That headset should be yours. Brian, we can hear that it's on because I can hear the crackle. Brian Medor. Okay, here we go. This is from uh, Grand Falls, Windsor, RCMP, Patty, and they're asking the public, avoid the area of High Street and Church Road in Grand Falls, Windsor. Uh, they're responding to an unfolding event. Residents in that area should stay inside I'll lock the doors, and we'll have further updates as soon as the RCMP provide those. That's around High Street, Church Road, and Grand Falls, Windsor. Stay inside, lock your doors. Thank you very much, Brian. Yet another warning. We've seen those in the recent past, certainly in this neck of the woods, when there was a gunman active out in Conception Bay South. We were all told to stay in place, stay secure, lock the door, stay inside. Don't be a looky-loo and wonder what's going on in that area. Please stay away and avoid. And when we get more information from the RCMP, we'll share it with you immediately. Thank you, Brian. Here we go. And just a quick note, Brian Medor, happy birthday, buddy. Brian Medor celebrating his 63rd birthday today. 
So down to the Growlers game this evening, apparently for Brian and his young fella, and hopefully they have a great time. All right, so but that's you know startling news, I would suggest. And you, you know full well that law enforcement agencies don't offer this in any flimsy fashion. There's got to be a very good reason as to why that's the case and the the urging of caution in the area out in Grand Falls, Windsor. So please do indeed pay heed. Uh, let's get to the break on time. In that effort, we will check in on the Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. You know what to do. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. A couple of callers in the queue. Dave wants to respond to Jordan Brown, of course, the NDP member for Lab West, regarding the logistical concerns that he has with this new Heart Force One, the fly-in, fly-out on the same day for patients to come to the catheterization lab here at the Health Sciences Center. Greg, oh, this is good. Gregory is actually a heart patient in Lab West. He'd also like to respond to Jordan. We'll have those calls and more right after this break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Say good morning to the progressive conservative member for Tops of Paradise. That's Paul Dinn. Paul, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? But, uh, not too bad, pardon me. How about you? Not too bad, not too bad. I was listening to uh, your show and the preamble, and that there's, a, there's a many, many health care issues I could speak to, you know, the seniors and the, uh, the heart cat program and so on. But, uh, and if you've got time, I can certainly speak to that. But I just wanted to call in on the... Uh, the uh, issue around the uh, cyber attack uh, and notices uh, still going out to individuals, uh, letting them know that their uh, information has been compromised and, uh, you know, giving them some information on what they should do and that. But this week, uh, uh, Monday, I actually got the call from a, a parent who was, who was pretty pretty upset over it that his 12-year-old uh, had received an email from Eastern Health. Or, or or a letter, sorry. You know, and the letter's about almost two pages long. So it's going to a 12-year-old uh, indicating that, uh, you know, your information has been uh, compromised. Uh, they talk about how who they should call and what they go through and apply for uh, for uh, credit uh, monitoring and the like. And uh, the parents were were upset because, of, first of all, it's it's going to a 12-year-old. And when they called in, of course, uh, due to privacy and that, they were initially first told, uh, well, we can't talk to you because you're not the individual on the letter. And that, ma- that makes sense. Uh, but after, after a while, they, they did get uh, to speak to people on that. But I, I guess the issue here is, um, first of all, I don't think anyone expected or thought in advance that, that uh, minors would be getting these letters. I guess in, in hindsight, uh, uh, you can see it could happen, but again, most most would not have expected that, and parents wouldn't have expected that. So, so the the red flags go up on this in terms of well, how is that going to affect a son or daughter in the years moving forward? Because as we know, I mean, you've got cyber hackers holding on to your information, and the, there's no best before date on that information. It can hold that forever, and, and make connections as they go on. So, but, but Paul, how yep. are you differentiating between a youth being flagged or warned or told versus, say, someone who's thirty years old? Does it really even make a difference? Well, well, yeah, well, that's what, that's my point. When I said in hindsight, you would have thought, you know, uh, you probably think that uh, minors would have been addressed. But I guess the issue here is uh, the minors can't uh, can't apply for the uh, uh, credit monitoring. 
apparently from what the parents are telling me, unlike a uh, you know uh, someone who's of age who can apply. So so that was the one thing that the uh, that the parents had indicated to me. They said, well, you know, you you got someone with a a, a minor who's been affected, and evidence that their information has been compromised, and yet they really don't have at their fingertips a uh, a process to ensure that their uh, their uh, you know, credit and that is monitored. Now, some people will say, well, you know, you're, you're 10, 11, you're 12 years old. Uh, how is that going to affect you? But, you know, with lack of information, you look at these uh, these minors as they get older and they take on a part-time job and they get a SIN number or, or maybe a student loan or maybe a parent co-signs their loan. And, uh, you know, these cyber hackers still have the information. And I'm no expert in this area. But so what happens down the road if they make the connection that way and then also connect to, to parents? So this is the issue that these parents were bringing up, you know, and it's, and it's I guess what I'm calling it is more of a GMO, get the message out, or, or a public service announcement that should be out there in terms of uh, government keeping people in the loop on, uh, on where this is, what's been happening, and other ways to address this. Because I don't think that something like this has been addressed yet. And, uh, you know, it's it, these parents were taken off guard on this and, and are upset, and they've got no, uh, no uh, indication as to, okay, how will that affect their child down the road, or them for that matter, when you, when you connect A to B. You know, so, so that's, that's, I guess, the differentiation between a minor getting it and, and an adult getting it is that uh, the minor cannot apply for the Equifax uh, credit monitoring. Yeah, oh, and that's fair, you know. But there's also a likelihood that they don't have anything in the way of credit to be monitored for some, right. depending on their age, whether or not they've actually had their first credit card or whatever the case may be. But as soon as they become the age majority, I would suggest that if the government is offering you five years of monitoring, as soon as I become old enough to uh, be eligible for this credit monitoring, my five-year clock should start then. Well, I mean, I'm reading their letter here in front of me. I mean, they're they're offering two years. Oh, two years. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Pardon me. You know. So, so two years. <laughs> I mean, we're almost two years in now. When you think about it, we're 16 months past the uh, when this happened. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm sure if someone applied now, it's in two years going forward. But still, you know, for this for this child here, uh, if they could avail of it, you know, uh, it would. Uh, they would still be a minor. And if they thought about it when they when they hit of age, then then they'd get their monitoring. But but the point is, you still have you still have a two year, a two year period, and what happens after that for anyone for that matter? And because again, you know, people hold on to information. But I, I think the point here that the parents are trying to make is that this is something that they didn't see coming, and it has larger ramifications for them. If and when their their daughter down the road would get, uh, you know, to get their first job, get their first credit card, and so on, how they make connections with the information they have in terms of an address or an MCP number, back to the parents, and so on, you know, and it creates almost like a domino effect. And Patty, I'm saying this with no no IT expertise. Uh, this is coming from the parents on this, and uh, to me, it sounds like a reasonable, uh, uh, you know. Uh, analogy on it, right? Sure, and it really kind of depends what kind of information has been compromised. Like if, rule of thumb, I can only speak, you know, not in general terms here, say inside my own household. Mm -hmm. The only bit of financial standing the boys had when they were 
less than 19 years of age was just a bank account. So there's ways for safeguards to be applied there through your own bank and or just yourself and the ability to check in almost every day just on your own phone. So hopefully some of those ideas are flooding into the heads of those youth who have been given the letter. But the two-year clock, whenever they become eligible for credit monitoring, it should start then. Not yeah. now with the receipt of this letter because it doesn't count because they can't avail of it, period. No. And you, you, that's exactly the, uh, one of the reasons for my call, as you just said, getting, getting the message out and ensuring that parents... And, and children alike are uh, more diligent and staying on top of this. And, you know, uh, as I said the other day, uh, you know, people say no news is good news. But in this case, it's, it's the reverse because people are just now finding out on this. And we still don't really know any more than we knew the day we were first told. Well, it's right, it's right in, the, in, in their letter. You know, we have no evidence that the information has been misused or disclosed further. They don't have that. And, you know, uh, you can go in on uh, Wikipedia and, uh, and, and Google what happened in Ireland, which was five, four or five months previous to our cyber attack, and you get more information there on, the, on what they've uh, done, right? Yeah, it's interesting. Appreciate this, Paul. I just wanted uh, one quick uh, mention on the uh, – I was listening to Jordan Brown speak, and uh, I do want to say uh, – you know, for any anybody who can get the, the heart cat process, that's a good thing. Twenty five people uh, to date getting that. Uh, there are some concerns we've we've raised as opposition, many concerns around the MTAP program, and the like. And the, the one concern I have, and I do agree with what he's talking about the nurses. I would hope, I would hope that in putting this program together this pilot that government has had reached out to the nurses on this to determine, you know, what what effect it would have on them. And maybe they have, maybe they haven't. I, I got a feeling they didn't. But, uh, you know, when you're coming in with these programs and I know they're needed and they're needed fast, you got to have the consultation too behind it to ensure all parties are... You know. Sure. But we also should use the numbers as accurately as possible. Yeah. It hasn't been 25 interruptions. It's been three. So there's been 25 patients and three different travel occasions. So, sure. yeah. you know, we haven't had 25 diverted nurses. Uh, there's been three instances. And, of course, that would include a potential very long round trip if you had to go all the way back to Happy Valley Goose Bay from St. John's. I appreciate the time, yeah. Paul. Thank okay. you. Thank you, Patty. Take all care. the best. Bye-bye. All right, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number eight. Good morning, Gregory. You're on the air. How you doing, Patty? I'm doing okay. How about you? Oh, not too bad. Bye. So I see in the subject line is that you're actually a heart patient living in Lab West. Yes, that's correct. How long since you've been diagnosed, and what kind of procedures are you waiting for? Die test? Uh, no, I've uh, I've uh, actually been out and back from St. John's in the last, uh, just yeah, got back yesterday. Actually. Okay, okay. Yeah, so I went through my procedure on uh, Monday morning, and uh, they went in and done the die test, and they went in, and right away they done the stint in my heart, and uh, I was released the same day. So your personal perspective, you know, I know that there's going to be comments or concerns voiced by some, whether it be politicians or otherwise, about logistics and nurses taken away from their job on Fort North B or in Happy Valley Goose Bay. But just tell us what the program meant to you and walk us through how it all worked. Well, I got, uh, I was in the hospital for over two weeks here in Labrador City. Um, I witnessed a lot of nursing staff shortages up there. Uh, they ran off their feet. They're they're doing the best they can up there, and uh, yeah, it's when they're going to be taking nurses away from the floor and sending them out when they don't really have enough nurses to do the job of looking after everybody. It's you know, 
it, it, it's a good it's a good plan, but we do have an air ambulance system that should be able to take on that role. And if there is shortages to the air ambulance system, they should be placing them with staff. Yeah, I mean, I know there are staff associated with air ambulance, and this is a new pilot program. And you know, Jordan's comments and other people talking about having having worked through this model to ensure that it doesn't have any implications, negative implications on the other end, whether it be a nurse removed from her work or his work in Happy Valley Goose Bay for a 21-hour uh, long round trip and maybe having to work the next day. So the thought was maybe a dedicated staff, but of course you'd have to take a dedicated staff member from an already stressed nursing system somewhere else. So I don't know what the best play is here, but did you, as an individual that obviously needed this procedure, I mean, it must have made you feel much more comforted and put your mind a bit more at ease that because of this because of this new program, you were in and out on the same day and had this procedure done and now hopefully on the road to recovery. Yeah, and I'd, uh, I'd like to thank, actually, Jordan Brown and David Brazel for uh, doing what they did because uh, my mother is a constituent of his and I'm a constituent of Jordan, so I'm great, great for what they did for bringing it to the floor and uh, getting action towards this, actually. Yeah. I mean, again, there's just so many different moving parts. It's hard to know to give it a full-throated thumbs up or sideways thumb or thumbs down. It sounds on its face to be a very wise approach to clear up the backlog and get people out of hospital beds and back home after having a procedure. But the other complexities that people are pointing out, I just wonder about how Dr. Sean Connors, Minister Osborne, and others are hearing them and whether or not there's going to be any adjustments made because it sounds like it could very well work and hopefully it works to the, the best possible outcomes and the less lessen the burden on individuals and or the system. Yeah, because uh, when I uh, actually got the air ambulance out there on Saturday, when I hit the Health Science Center, I have nothing but the greatest appreciation for everything they did for me there. Uh, they were ran off their feet there, too, and uh, they looked after me like I was a number one patient. And, uh, you know, I, I got my hats off to the health science. Well, it's like I say all the time. You know, the wait times and access has been a concern, and understandably so. But when people get in the system, the vast majority have nothing but positive experience dealing with top-quality professionals, compassionate, well-trained. And that's, you know, unfortunately, it's the bad stories that get a lot of the press versus, you know, people like yourself applauding the healthcare workers that you experienced interaction with here on this past Monday. So I'm glad that was the outcome for you, and I'm glad you got the help you needed, Gregory. Yeah, so, like, you know, I, I kind of agree with, like, it, it's a good idea to have it for one day delivery back and forth, too. But uh, I ended up uh, back in the emergency on uh, Tuesday night, and uh, I went into the emergency shortness of breath. Um, I ended up getting pneumonia on top of the heart procedure that I just went through. And, uh, you know, I was, I was grateful to be around the Health Science Center for that extra day or, or so when I got the flight back. So it's kind of good to have beds out there, too, because, you know, like I ended up with pneumonia and I ended up in OR and there was this lady who I'd like to appreciate. I'd like to thank personally because she got up after waiting eight hours in the emergency room, went and got a nurse because I was about to pass out because I was losing my oxygen. And, you know, like the, the, the waiting room was full and they came out and they put me ahead of everybody there and brought me in. And she was waiting eight hours herself. So I'd like to thank that woman. If I don't know her name, but if she's listening, 
Uh, It's grateful to my heart to thank her because I was in trouble and she knew it. And she went and she got nurses and they brought me in and they, they had me figured out by morning what was on the go. And like the emergency room was just overrun down there. And, 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 you know, I just, I'm just so grateful for everything they did. It's a pretty emotional thing for me to talk about. I'm sure it is, Gregory, and I, I'm sure they appreciate your kind words. Uh, I wish you nothing but the best of health, and thanks for time this morning. Okay, thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, very quickly, before we get to the news, I want to say good morning, congratulations on a heck of a run for Calvin Wagg. Today is the last day he'll be working at the Hotel Gander, and as his son Ryan says, taking off his name tag for the last time. Worked nearly 47 years at the Hotel Gander. That's a pretty good run. They're having a retirement celebration for him tomorrow afternoon, 3 to 5 p.m. at the Evangel, I think that's how you pronounce it, the Evangel Cafe, out in Gander. And in addition to his retirement party, it's his 65th birthday. So happy birthday to Calvin Wagg, and way to go. 47 years at one thing, or I guess a variety of different roles at the Hotel Gander. Pretty cool. All right, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. And welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Dave, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. How are you, sir? Not too bad, I suppose. You? Main thing, you know, coming up on the weekend. Come on with it. All good, come on. Listening to your show as usual this morning and uh, hearing lots of uh, issue, I guess, with the healthcare system in the province and instances that that have come up. And over the past while, I've been kind of considering a lot of this myself because naturally, as we get older, we spend a lot more time back and forth to the hospital and our age and our, our, you know, our basic population is getting much older, requiring different services. And it seems that one of the main things that we have, because nobody complains after they're in the system's care, like once you've made it to finally getting into whatever you're, you're needing from the hospitals and say, like, if you are hospitalized, the care is second to none. I mean, I've I've encountered nothing but excellent care and compassionate people. Our main issue in this province seems to be with capacity and how it's dealt with. One of the concerns that come up this morning, I heard Jordan Brown speaking and, and, and alluding to the need for fly-out and fly-back access to cath labs which would be, of course, now in St. John's. Well, I, for one, would have to think that probably, in light of other things that we've heard, that probably if we were to shift some of this capacity around, um, i.e., we just built a fantastic big building in Cornerbrook, damn near a billion dollars. I think it's, the number was $750 million or $800 million dollars. And it's a, a building that's no doubt, you know, it's nice to see a replacement for an old facility. But the new facility brings about less actual in-house beds. And if we follow what the health accord is saying, then Stephenville Hospital will be reduced to a community facility level one. That's going to mean less inpatient beds. And it appears to me that... These types of decisions aren't really made with thinking about 
capacity or quality of the delivery of health care. It's like their knee-jerk situations, and they were politically driven. They were vote-getters. I don't think it makes any sense to have a better building but fewer services, fewer people delivering those services within the system. What we do need, and we seriously need, I'll allude to one of the changes that was tossed at us after they decided to build Cornerbrook Hospital. That was they reneged on the use or the availability of PET scan at this facility. And I think what was cited was that it was a capacity thing, that there wasn't enough going on here on the West Coast. Well, in that case, it would be an issue. But if we had the extra PET scan in this province, wouldn't need to be in St. John's. It could be here. Like we travel to St. John's, we travel east all the time for all kinds of different reasons, from meetings with specialists that are not here to services that are not provided here. If we were to take a, a more or less a center of excellence approach to looking at these types of things, well, maybe Cornerbrook Hospital could become, you know, uh, equipped uh, to be able to handle PET scan, to be able to be a cath lab to be able to have the professionalism there. It didn't need to be all of it. It could be some of it. There would be nothing wrong with people traveling from other parts of the island to come westward instead of us always heading eastward because that also affects your capacity at centers like the health sciences and whatever else if we got to come from out here. What would be wrong with actually putting in place some type of committee or board that looks at the distribution of these services island-wide. Because taken in case in point, if Stephenville under the new health accord were to be reduced to a level one facility, there's a lot of things that go on there now that probably would not. Well, maybe this thing doesn't need to happen. If Corner Brook takes on capacity for something else that's needed, like as alluded to, Labrador would certainly have probably would prefer to be able to come down down just down the northern peninsula to Cornerbrook to the western area to avail of services is easier for family members and whatever to get near them after something happens we start looking at shifting around capacities for different things in the province for different centers some are underutilized some are blocked some you can't get near I mean, they've got a serious issue in there all the time now at the Health Sciences Center because there's so many of us from elsewhere around the island that converge upon that place because we have to. Yeah, okay, I think I know where you're going. But, you know, like even the residents in and around Cornerbrook, it was the, the big item that was the sticking point. It was we want a CAT scanner. And even all of the national guidelines and standards regarding that type of uh equipment you know wasn't really met by the normal parameters but that was what people were demanding but you know and i said this at the time i'm really surprised people don't think that a cath lab is important inside the cornerbrook hospital and, cons- and consequently went by the wayside so that's the reason i picked up the phone patty because exactly that you said that and it made so much sense well i mean how many more people would need those types of services and talk about collection areas and spreading around the demand and need, especially if we're talking about geographical and logistical hurdles. If there was an option in Cornerbrook, then that would encompass 
Labrador, the Great Northern Peninsula, all the way in maybe so far as Grand Falls, Windsor. Yes. You know, when we're talking about close proximity to that, to Cath Lab. So yeah. I just was, back then I was surprised, and now with this renewed, or pardon me, this new pilot project regarding Heart Force One, it just brings that memory straight back that I just wonder why we didn't do that in the first place. But anyway, I'll give you the last word, Dave, Patty. before I have to go. Yeah, it was a great observation. It's the reason I picked up the phone. I totally agree with you. And why could we not be looking at that? And, and as well, for more services than the, than, than the simple cath lab, because I'm sure that we've got way too much uh, demand and, and little capacity in areas. And if you were to switch this around, take a look at exactly where the wait times are to, the people that are traveling in from where, there's a better way. And it's a better way than simply shutting down emergency rooms, saying we have staffing issues or whatever, and then putting together mobile doctor teams and whatever the case may be. No, we need to handle the capacity. We need to understand better the animal that we're dealing with, and that being how can we spread this out a bit so that there's not so much demand on any one facility in St. John's. And then that in itself would lend itself to the credibility and the viability of other centers island-wide if we were traveling both ways. Appreciate the time, Dave. Thanks very much. Thank you. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, same to you, Dave. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, there's someone who's concerned about home inspections, fuel taxes, and then whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show with an update on what's happening out in Grand Falls, Windsor. VOCM's Brian Medora joins us. Brian? Well, the RCMP have taken a man into custody now, so residents in the uh, Church Road, High Street area can resume normal activities uh, no current threat to public safety go back to what you were doing of course they were for the past half hour or so 45 minutes asked to stay in place that advisory is now lifted and back to normal we don't have any details on the incident itself yet patty but uh, we'll await the uh, news release from the rcmp i appreciate the update brian well that's good news for those in the area indeed thank you thanks oh, there he goes brian Mador. very quickly before we get to the phone uh we had a caller a listener Tell us that they picked up a blue, uh, blue, uh, pardon me, blue, a bell-aligned Blue Cross health card with the name Donald Power on it in the parking lot of Tim's on Topsail Road. If you are the Donald Power and you've lost your bell-aligned Blue Cross health card, we know where it is. Call the Shoreline office. Uh, of course, good folks at the Shoreline. Uh, they're in the phone book. You can just Google up their number. I don't have it right in front of me. But call the Shoreline office to recover your bell-aligned Blue Cross card, Donald Power. Let's go to line number four. Caller, you're on the air. Hello, caller, line Hello. number four. Pardon me? Go ahead, you're on the air. Uh, uh, I don't want to on the air because this might cause me trouble. You don't want to be on the air? Okay, then I should put you back on hold then? Because you are now on the air. Okay, so we'll put that gentleman on hold if he doesn't want to be on the air. That's fine. Let's go to line number two. Gene, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Thank you for taking my call on the first time calling. Uh, Actually, when I was in the queue listening, I think this subject I was calling you has already been brought up. However, I was calling regarding the home delivery oil service. Uh, I have a close relative who's on a fixed income, living trying to stay in her own home. And she told me that she got oil, a quarter tank of oil delivered, $522. $79 of that was taxes. Mm Uh, I don't know. I just we have a lot of smart people in the government. I just wonder how come you know seniors got to pay a tax on home fuel. 
why can't it be exempt somehow? You know, I understand the, the oil is going up and she's prepared to pay that, but $79 is a lot for someone who's on a fixed income. And that's a quarter tank of oil delivered to her. Right. You know, there was at one point uh, home heating subsidies that were really quite common. So I don't know if the right answer is to, like many programs coming from the government, if you put in a policy that allows exemptions, if you have a net family income of less than 30000 just to pick a random number, or if you're over the age of 65. Because at some point, especially with now a carbon tax to be applied to home heating fuels as well, there's going to be some pretty extreme difficulty out there, especially in the cold winter months. So government is going to have to evaluate, as opposed to everyone earning $125,000 or less, getting 500 bucks. Maybe, just maybe, we're going to have to figure out home heating because, and I don't know what the right answer is, because no. not everyone over 65 is in the same predicament. I know plenty no. of seniors that have got the world by the tail, own their own home, got lots of money, big pensions, but other seniors don't. So it's probably even a better idea to cover off those in need if you just base it on the net family income, because then you might be 50 and really in desperate straits, as well as someone who's 70. So that might be the answer. That's so true. That's so true. No, anyway, I just felt I had to call when she told me all these taxes. I thought, you know what? And I'm sure it's been discussed many times on your line, and you bring up a lot of good topics. So I thank you very much for your time. And uh, I appreciate yours, Jean. Thank you for the call. Thank you. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You know, of course, taxation is a prime revenue stream for government. We all understand that. And there are adjustments people can make. And, I mean, it's been uncomfortable to talk about so many different price-related matters. Because unless you are really doing very well, even the fundamentals, the basic human rights of feeding yourself has become extremely uh, treacherous. So for the most things, you know, unless it's a prepared item inside the grocery store, you're not paying a tax on it. But when it comes to heating your home, there's going to have to be some careful consideration given by the provincial government about how we deal with that issue. It was a good thing that when the bilateral agreement was struck between the province and the federal government for the initial imposition of carbon tax here, there was an exemption on home heating fuels. And it makes all the sense in the world to me. So, it, and you know, I know some seniors are absolutely struggling with these cost issues and do need a little bit of relief because there is no avoiding the cold. You know, whether or not you're a liberal or a Tory or a dipper or independent or the Rhino Party or Marijuana Party, the winter's going to come again next year. So, is it wiser to have an evaluation of a net family income? Because you could indeed have uh, a single parent, 35 years of age, with a couple of children, having a hard time making ends meet and unable to heat their home. You could have a married couple at 70 years of age and they're having the exact same experience. So... Does it make more sense to pick out a net family income number, a threshold there, and apply some support? And I don't know if it has to include the erasing of every single tax dollar in it, but some break. I mean, just look around where there are some different breaks afforded to you as you age, whether it be with, you know, seniors discounts for a variety of things. And when you turn 55, apparently you get a break over at Shoppers Drug Mart. I didn't know that until my buddy turned 55 the other day. So what do we do on that home heating fuel story? Because this time next year, it'll be a vastly different landscape regarding the amount of taxes applied to your home heating fuels. Anyway, let's keep going. Line number one. James, you're on the air. Yes. Hi. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Yes. Uh, uh, I'm calling. Uh, my, my name is James Marshall, and uh, I'm calling, 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 calling. I'm sorry. Calling concerning um, my uh, new book, High Sight, The Power of Perception. Sure. Tell us about it. 
Uh, I'm legally blind, registered with C and I B, and have been uh, since 1978. And uh, my book deals with uh, growing up, adapting to, uh, and all the struggles associated with uh, uh, blindness and and, uh, and life itself, basically. So uh, as a part of uh, White Cane Week, uh, I'm a bit nervous here this morning. <laughs> Just take your time, sir. Go right ahead. Yeah. So as part of White Cane Week and awareness, uh, this book, anyone who would like to know uh, the awareness of uh, growing up and the struggles of uh, having um, uh, blindness or a disability as such, uh, reading this book would bring bring to light the awareness of uh, what it is to be legally blind or visually impaired as such. Sure. And and uh, it not only deals with that, but it's it's deals with life itself and the struggles of growing up and and uh, um, leading into life itself uh, uh, with with a disability. So uh, to uh, put it into a better perspective, the type of disease I have is uh, known only to Newfoundland. Uh, it's uh, called newfoundland Rathcone dystrophy syndrome, and there's approximately 35 to 40 people with it, and I being one of them, I was uh, the first one to be identified in 1978 as that, having an unknown high disease. So is it a genetic anomaly or something, sir? Yes, it's uh, it's genetic, uh, and it's uh, caused by uh, the, the gene uh, was uh, identified in uh, 2003. So that's how long it took, from 1978 to 2003, to identify the gene causing it. So, and the gene is a HRLBP1 gene, and it's only in Newfoundland. So, uh, like many other uh, genetic diseases, uh, Newfoundland is famous for such uh, such things. So uh, the book is uh, entitled Eyesight, The Power of Perception, and uh, it's available through uh, Dorn's Publishing, which was the publisher, uh, online bookstore, or uh, Amazon Canada. It's not available in the brick-and-mortar stores, such as Chapters and Codes, as of yet, but it will be uh, in the future. James, if you don't mind me asking a personal question, because I, I know a gentleman in the deaf community where when he was young and he didn't really know why he was different than the other children, and one day with no real explanation, he found himself on a train headed to Montreal for a specialized school for children with the deaf. So because we didn't have the accommodations, we didn't understand, we didn't have the supports in place. Describe some things from your youth that happened because you were blind. You know, whether it be how you were treated at school or in the community, or I'm not even sure what I'm getting at, but if you're recounting these issues in your book about your own personal experience, share a couple of those with us from your your youth in particular. Um, I didn't find out I was blind or uh, legally blind until about the age of four. Um, I was out late one evening and uh, with my friends playing, as, as friends do, and, uh, and we stayed much too late, I guess, and it was duckish, uh, kind of late in the evening and, and uh, not much light. And on my way home, uh, uh, dark fell, and I lost sight of where I was too, so I was completely night-blind. And that was my first recollection of having a, a sighted problem. So it, it began at that point, and from that point on, it, it grew to when I got in school, uh, 
having to uh, uh, be part of uh, a peer group that was able-bodied and, and was had no problems whatsoever, and I wanted to be part of that. But uh, I hid my, uh, because of bullying and, and seeing other uh, disabled people who were in chairs or with canes or whatever, uh, walking and, and, and unable to manoeuvre, other kinds of disabled issues, I hid my sight. And it's, it was easy to hide because no one would ever know. If you saw me today, you would never know that I have a noise sight problem. It's 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 so like uh, and so the the title of the book being eyesight, the power of perception, your perception of me, when you would see me today, even today at age I'm age seventy one, you would not know that I have an eyesight problem. And again, I'm not sure how to even ask this question, but how do you think people are perceived when it becomes known? that they have visual impairment and or legally blind or completely blind. What do you think people think of when they encounter someone with any of those eyesight circumstances? They don't know how to react Such uh, with people with disabilities. Most people don't know how to react uh, to people with a disability as such. So, uh, um, again, uh, I know as a young person, I know how people would react because my peers would be would bully and, and put me in a place and, and wouldn't include me in different things. And for me, I wanted to be included in whatever was a, was there to be included in. But uh, and as, as, when it came to work, even at work, people wouldn't know how to react to such a thing. And again, I hid it through my most most of my work life and trying to accommodate and, and uh, myself into the mainstream of society and try to live as as, I'm a, I'm a, as a human being, and I can do most anything anybody else can do. Uh, but the perception is of other people that uh, a disabled person can't do these things. But I can. I can do most anything that anybody else can do, given uh, the restrictions applied on me, right? Understood, James. I'm glad you called this morning, sir. So the book, name of the book is Eyesight, The Power of Perception. So, and I think, as you rightfully point out, it extends beyond visual impairment to other disabilities and how the general public understands how they react and interact with people that have one disability or another. Exactly. Um, I was on with Linda Swain before Christmas, before the book came out. So the book is out now. And uh, I explained to Linda, or as best at that time I could explain to Linda, uh, um, what the uh, disease is and um, what it was about. But again, going forward, uh, um, in keeping with awareness uh, for White King Week, uh, I think this is uh, probably uh, the best uh, way for your listeners to uh, pick up a book, read it, and understand what a person goes through through life with uh, a disability, not only an eyesight disability, but any type of a disability. Absolutely, sir, and I'm glad you called to tell us about it today. You're welcome back on the show at your convenience, James. Okay, thank you, Patty. Take good care. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Right, bye-bye. It's James Mercer, the author of Eyesight, the Power of Perception. You know, it mentions it's a genetic anomaly unique to this province. The genetic research done here in, the, in Newfoundland and Labrador is world-class, and the research that's been done and the 
things that have been identified, the gene mutations that have been identified here are really quite something. I always think back to the one known as ARVC. It's the arthromogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy, you know, which causes a false, or pardon me, a fatal heart attack. And that was identified by a group of researchers here. And a lot of genetic work done here because we have a very unique gene pool, as uh, people like to put it. Let's take a break. When we come back, still some time to speak with you. Do not go away. Your VOCM Mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy, 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Sylvia, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Doing okay, thanks. How about you? Oh, I'm doing okay. Hanging in there. I just spent the last three weeks um, in the courts with uh, the FNI against Bourgeois, uh, Benoit trial, uh, FNI Halibut. Yes, ma'am. You know, yeah, I'm familiar and, with it. Uh, oh, I know you are. But I was wondering, how can I reach out to Mr. Tom Rideout? Oh, my goodness. I'm not really sure, to be honest. No. I would just, uh, well, I, if I can't get through to him, I just want him, if he's listening, to accept my apology for, uh, with the letters that came out from the band and everything. And when he did his testimony as a witness for Friends of Halibut, uh, when you hear the truth, it, it makes a total difference to your outlook on someone. You know, I mean, the man testified that what he did was, you know, he felt that everyone that he approved were approved properly, you know, with no complaints from the government or FNI on his job that he did. But um, a lot of people swore on him. <laughs> no doubt. Well, this story actually begins in 1949, when yeah. the province agreed with the federal government that there were no indigenous people in this province, and everything stemmed from that. Then, of yeah. course, and it has always long felt to me that this was a reverse engineer process. So about 104, 105,000 people applied to join the band. They accepted about 18,000 applicants. And curiously, more than, I think it's 10,000 of the Halibu, the existing Halibu band members were kicked out because they implemented this really bizarre point system where you had... Siblings, simply because one lived in a, uh, a recognized indigenous community, one did not, one got status, one didn't. So it became extremely confusing. The government was expecting around fifteen to 20,000 applicants, but when they got over 100, of course, they changed the process. And it has seemed quite unfair. Well, Patty, I'll tell you one thing. In October of last year, I reapplied for my status through indigenous services. And I was denied because I could not locate anyone on the 1921 or 1941 census that did say they were Indian, Mi'kmaq, Native, whatever words they used. And I did find a cousin after that, so I'm going to do my appeal and send that in. But my point is that I also, even though my letter is confidential, I will say what it said on it, that as a registrar, he has the authority to put me on the register, but because of the agreement with Halibu, he cannot. His hand, his hands are tied. <laughs> so even if I did qualify, which I'm sure I will now with the new information I have, if they actually went and did the Indian Act part of it for the four generations, there would be maybe... I'd say about 4,000 people 
that would be able to legally get in under the Indian Act with the four generations from the census for Newfoundland. Sylvia, before we go to the break here, what, what happens when you get status? We know that it's a landless band. Uh, yep. So what does an individual get insofar as what people call perks or benefits or tax exemptions, what have you? What exactly does a member of the Halapu Band get on that front? What do they get? Yep. Okay, me personally, um, like I said, I just want my name on the registry to say that I am an Indigenous person because you know yourself. I mean, people say, oh, you're not Indigenous, you don't have a card. But my thing is, I don't want a card. Just put my name on that registry, please. Because I know who I am, yes. But someone can look at me and say, you don't need a card. And I say, well, why do you need one? I would love one now. I'm retired. I have to pay almost $200 a month out of my pension to keep myself covered for insurance. 66 years old. Who knows how much it's going to cost me. But someone that looks at me that has a card and I don't, they don't have to pay that $200, do they? So that would be fine. Mm -hmm. But I can live without it. You know what I'm saying? But my point is, and you can go, say, to Con River and get your discount from your new vehicle. Don't have to pay taxes on it. Right. Um, you know, uh, there is, they say, and they have said, um, the chief and the band council, um, band manager will say, well, you know, it doesn't matter. We'll accept you. But they don't accept you. No, there's a formal, you know, there's a formal the process. there. Sure. Uh, Sylvia, I appreciate the time here this morning. We'll see what the eventual judicial ruling comes down. If it's not favorable, we have already been told there will be an appeal immediately. So I appreciate your time. Hope you have a nice weekend. I hope you do too, because there's a blizzard coming. Yeah, I'll be battening down the hatches myself. Get your storm chips. Thanks, Sylvia. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, final break of the morning and the week. Jason Spingles there from uh, FFAW Unifor and John Harris. He's the Executive Director for External Affairs at Monsu. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Sigmund to the Secretary-Treasurer at FFAW Unifor, Jason Spingle. Jason, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and happy Friday, I guess, to yep. you and everyone out there. Thank you. Uh, no, yeah, no, I just wanted to touch base. We had, uh, so uh, we uh, semi-annually, so that's twice a year, of course, we have our uh, formerly our part of our Constitution. Uh, our inshore council, and that's uh, upwards of 38. Not everyone makes every meeting, but uh, we had 30, I think, at this session. Uh, the inshore council is our democratically elected governing body for all harvesters throughout our membership and throughout the province, of course. And, uh, you know, uh, the issue is discuss all the issues and to make formal motions and, you know, if uh, to su support or reject or whatever to come out with these policy, key policy issues. And I guess we had that meeting and we, we discussed some important issues. And then coincidentally, in a sense, I guess it was good timing. We did have a meeting scheduled with our premier. Uh, so the meeting, the council meetings were on Tuesday and Wednesday. And we met with the premier. We had a good meeting with him on uh, on Thursday. So I just wanted to touch base on a couple of the issues, I guess. that. Uh, well, just before we get to that, your name was brought up specifically on this program uh, yesterday or day before. And uh, uh, Harvester Conway Keynes. He said it feels like they're getting zero representation, and you're the person who should be representing Conway, but he hasn't heard from you, hasn't seen you, hasn't met with you. Reaction to it, to that? Oh, okay. You know, well, Conway certainly, uh, I, I spoke to Conway uh, just a couple of days ago, actually, and had a good conversation. Of course, uh, 
Uh, my, you know, I represented the West Coast, Northern Peninsula, and Labrador for uh, for many years. And in moving to secretary uh, treasurer position, we need to replace uh, this position. And I guess again, coincidentally, you know, we 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 uh, took the time we felt we needed to try to get the best person. We think we have a great uh, person, and they'll be starting on Monday, actually. So Conway was pleased to hear that. And I've reached out to him and others that I communicate with on text, for example. But uh, we'll be looking to get uh, our new staff rep introduced to our membership, uh, particularly in his areas, and uh, to move forward accordingly. So I'll uh, I'll certainly try to help him meet as many people as possible as he transitions into this new position. So Fair enough. So that must have been after he called his program. So that's a good thing. Okay, so key issues here that were on the agenda. Was Mackerel one of them? A macro is certainly one of them. So I guess I could just, there's, you know, there's three fisheries where quota issues and are sharing our uh, major issues. Of course, macro would be one. And we just heard about the uh, Americans, so, you know, and this is a trans, trans, known as a transboundary stock. And we've always maintained, why would Canada close if, if the United States is going to have a quota? Uh, they've reduced to 3639. In saying that, you know, with the amount of mackerel that we've seen over the past year in particular, or I would say recent years, we know that that would be uh, still a very small uh, proportion of what we feel that that stock is and what evidence is there. And, I mean, that's not only from harvesters, that's from people in the communities. As I said to the minister herself, I said, Minister, a lot of fish live in deep water, exist in deep water. You can't see them until they come up in gear. Mackerel is something that is along our coastlines. And... Uh, you know, so we've done a number of initiatives, uh, surveys. We've actually invested some of the members' own money to get our own boats out there, given that the science from DFO is is uh, missing the boat, so to speak, and not adequate. And we will be sending an experienced macro harvester along with one of our science people to the assessment uh, in February the 20th and 21st in Quebec to uh, try to put that forward. But uh, I guess simply, simply put, if the Americans have uh, 3,600 tons, we can't have any less than that, that's for sure. Uh, I think everyone agrees on that, but uh, but we still think that number is, is uh, not a big number. And northern cod, um, we're fishing northern cod at uh, 0.2, and I guess and that brings us to a harvest of around 13,000 tons. Uh, 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 this is a very, very, very conservative number by any stretch of the imagination. For, and just, again, I guess some timely issues, the 3PS cod stock, which everyone agrees is not in, uh, the you know is not in the shape uh, that everyone wants it to be in. Uh, is, is is there some concern? And harvesters, uh, most harvesters would acknowledge that. But even within that, we're talking about either having a fishing uh, number of 0.5 or uh, 0.7 as our position on that, which would kind of keep the qu- small quota where it is. So so we're only fishing northern cod at 0.2, and things are much more positive for northern cod. So. And, you know, as the premier said, I don't know if it was in people's psyche. And I said, I guess, you know, that was our point. We agreed with him. So it's not logic and science don't seem to be um, don't seem to be at play here. And if we had uh, even, you know, point four, which is still below what they're talking about for three PS, we could have had a much more productive cod fishery, which is was certainly greatly needed to build that industry and that wonderful resource. And of course, then the redfish. So. Uh, and, and I think we've talked about that. It's going to depend on the future of the West Coast Otter Trail Fleet, the West Coast in particular, and uh, whether the right decision is made there. So the minister, uh, the premier, I'm sorry, will be meeting. He said he'll be meeting with uh, with Minister Murray, and uh, he was aware. Uh, we were pleased to see that he was aware of all of those issues and appreciated the extra detail. 
for his meeting. So, Well, I appreciate the time. We'll leave it there for today. You can join us again oh. next week because I want to uh, sneak on one more call. Okay, so what I will say is there's other issues like on CRAD. And we can talk about that next week. Stuff. I can give you a call back on Monday, and uh, I appreciate that, then, and I'll, I'll, I'll call you back early next week. Thank, Thank you, Jason. You. Take care. Take care. Jason Bye. Spingle, FFAW Secretary-Treasurer, line number four, John Harris with Monsu. You're on the air. Hi, how's it going, Patty? Okay, you? I'm great. Uh, we're just outside here uh, at the rally in front of the Arts and the Mid Building. Uh, how's it gathering around here? Lots of students, lots of faculty. Uh, uh, here at the Arts and Men right now. It's, I'm not surprised one bit that Monsu has uh, shown their support for the Faculty Association. For some people, it might be a little bit counterintuitive, John, because some of the students and their graduating plans or their semester may be lost if this is a prolonged job action. How was the decision arrived to support the Faculty Association? Because some of your fellow students may have an entire semester interrupted here, possibly. Well, what we see, what we've been seeing since the faculty's been on strike, is over 30 elected uh, student representatives or student uh, groups, clubs, and societies have come out in support uh, because we understand what the long-term fight is about. It's about the future of our university. The decisions that are made by admin don't reflect what students and faculty, the lifeblood of this university, need. So we need we need some change, and we need uh, you know some shared governance in the collective agreement. John, is there any type of worry inside of Monsu that if there's any additional financial compensation, which is part of the offer already, 12% over four years, if that trickles down into increased tuition or fees, how do you factor that into your position on the strike? Well, most of the, most of the funding of Memorial comes from uh, you know, public funding. So, uh, you know, when it comes to public funding, it, you should have a democratic you know, institution. And, you know, there's so much secrecy that goes on at Memorial. The Board of Regents, uh, for one, doesn't have to tell anybody what's going on in there. They have a non-disclosure agreement. Uh, We don't know the decisions that are being made. There's very little transparency. And so, uh, you know, that's our main concern today, you know, Patty. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I know that this has been very contentious when it began on Monday, and I think even more so today, very quickly ramping up. And we haven't heard very much, say, for instance, from the Premier or the Minister Responsible, and or uh, uh, Dr. Timmons or anybody else, they, their representatives have been few and far between. We actually had Robin Whitaker on from Monfa earlier today. Uh, because we're edging up towards 12 o'clock, I'll give you the uninterrupted last word. John, go ahead. All right. Well, yeah, the, we're disappointed in the strategy coming from admin of confusion. Uh, we need a fair deal at Mon. We need the teachers to have a better, bigger say. We need to end this uh, you know, c- uh, precarious work these contracts, four-month, eight-month contracts that are, are ruining our departments and shrinking our faculty. Uh, so uh, we're, we're out here to support Munfa. Thank you so much for having me, Patty. Appreciate the time. Thank you. All right, take care. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. It's John Harris from Munn's Student Union. All right, good show today. Big thanks to all hands, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again on Monday morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. Talk Monday. Bye-bye.